Hello and welcome to Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee, part 16, with me, Eason. And me, Bex. And today we're going to be talking about the episode which has uh, caused a bit of controversy everywhere because it has leaked already in the UK this morning and we're recording this podcast after watching it again but at 2am in the morning (laughs) because we thought it'd be really fun to basically firstly watch it again and secondly uh, have a chance to watch it like properly with everyone else which is kind of nice but we were so excited after watching it that we thought uh, although it's very early, we would try and record our podcast now because tomorrow in the UK it's going to be a bank holiday, so we got the day off anyway. Yeah, no work, woo! <laughs> <laughs> but very exhausting at the same time. Um, yeah, so we actually heard about the uh, the aforementioned leak of this episode, which happened uh, through Sky Atlantic and Now TV, uh, whilst checking our Twitter very early this morning or yesterday morning, whatever day. I don't know what's going on now, and there was news it had leaked. And so we ran down the stairs at about eight, uh, seven o'clock in the morning, saw it was there, and then we watched it <laughs> whilst it was up. We thought about it a little bit, and then we thought, well, if it was a finale, we wouldn't do that. Yeah. Um, but it was up, and we were worried that, well, to be honest, I didn't know where it leaked yeah. or what had happened. So uh, we thought, well, we'll watch it then. And then we thought, uh, okay, that was an incredible episode of Twin Beaks. And then we thought, we will watch it again and uh, then what happened was it was gone it was removed <laughs> uh, so we've kind of been off twitter all day pretty much um, aside from putting out warnings about you know avoiding spoilers if you can yeah but i think people have been pretty good about this from what i've seen the people in the uk who have watched it haven't been tweeting anything at all yeah about it and that's kind of how it should be it's been nice to be kind of you know it almost feels like it's been a normal week for us, it's been kind of nice, I think, to have watched it at a reasonable hour for once. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, seven a.m. Less dreamy than watching it at two a.m. Um, mainly because you're then not going back to sleep afterwards. We were just kind of awake, thinking, "Wow, what have we just seen?" Yeah. Well, you know what we've just seen because you've seen it now. <laughs> <laughs> you've seen it by now as well. But it it has been really odd not being able to talk about it with anyone. Yeah, like immediately after, which is why we thought, "I know, we'll wait and then we'll watch it properly." and so we've just watched it again. We're quite tired, but at the same time, I mean, I think everyone will agree that was an absolutely fantastic episode of Twin Peaks. Yeah. And this is probably weird for us as well, because we've never recorded them this close to broadcast, I suppose. So usually we've kind of, we watch them at 3, 4 a.m. when they're in the UK. And then we watch it again the following day, UK time in the evening when we get home. And then we'll think about it for quite a long time during the day and... Uh, then we'll record it and then we'll put it out. But it's weird to be recording it immediately after we've watched it for the second time. So we're probably going to miss things and, you know, maybe not have the most in-depth analysis, but it's such a fun episode. Um, and also we are, we've also decided to do it early as well because we're hoping to put out another episode later in the week. Yeah, so later this week, Seth Manukin is joining us for another slice of pie. Uh, but this time it's going to be basically a retrospective about the whole series so far and looking forward to the finale and speculating, theorising, talking about how awesome the entire thing has been. Uh, so that's going to be going up probably about Thursday time. Yeah. Um, so it's another reason why it's good for us to just immediately dive into part 16 and do it straight away. Yeah, but this is a general message. Even though I know you're not listening, Sky Atlantic, Now TV, enough of this nonsense. <laughs> Next week... Just 
everyone make sure that if you can get in touch with whoever broadcasts it or streams it or whatever make sure that the mystery is kept alive just until it airs properly because i think in a lot of places they are doing a simulcast of the final two hours of twin peaks and it may be the last two hours of twin peaks on tv at least yeah ever this has been such a wonderful few months it's been spoiler free it's been great and i just hope that for those last few hours it'll also continue to be spoiler free and we can all enjoy it around the world together yeah and and to be honest i think if it does leak somewhere uh, the only solution I can see is to literally turn the power off to the house until, <laughs> until it airs. <laughs> yeah, so that's enough of the stern warnings and enough of our ramblings. <laughs> um, yeah, we're reeling from what we've just seen. It's been an absolutely bonkers episode. It had a lot of the things that we were kind of hoping would happen. It may have been, you know, the perfect hour of of Twin Peaks in terms of the return. Maybe not the best hour of the season so far, but as an episode that was like I think very well constructed, put together, how it resolved things that had happened before, how it was uh foreshadowing things that I think are gonna happen in the last couple of hours that we'll talk about probably towards the end of this. Um I think it was absolutely fantastic. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it fulfilled some of our expectations subverted others in uh, some very amusing ways. It's a, an, an episode that kind of perfectly encapsulates how Twin Peaks can surprise you and how it's not interested in engaging all the time with traditional narrative structures, um, which we'll come to later. But I thought, I thought it was a brilliant episode, full of surprises. And of course, what we've been waiting for all this time... <laughs> Coop is back. He's back. And he is the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, but I pres- I mean, I, like, as we were watching it live, or not live, as we were watching it when it was leaked on, yeah. on Now TV, it was one of those moments that uh, does two things. One, it makes you punch the air in excitement. And two, it makes you think, that's already been gift. <laughs> I know that probably already this, this, this is going to be everywhere. Everyone's going to be looking at each other who watch Twin Peaks. And saying, I am the FBI. <laughs> if anyone asks you who you are, you know, what your name is over the next week or so, this is the equivalent again of the coffee time thing, the walking into a coffee shop and giving everyone a wave. The new thing is just to turn to anyone, even if you don't know them, and just tell them, you are the FBI. <laughs> but yeah, let's crack on with our recap, speculation, and theories on part 16 No Knock, No Doorbell. Yeah, let's crack on. Yeah, so the logo this time is kind of flashing orange and green with a blue background, which is a lot more colourful than the logos have been previously. Yeah, it hasn't been sort of two-tone and it's kind of really going all over the place. What do you think that kind of means or symbolises in some way? I don't know, it it reminded me immediately of the various colours that Diane has worn over the weeks. (laughs) Um, but that could just be that I've been obsessing over that with the timeline yeah. of what she's been wearing. I remember there was a slight flash of turquoise in it as well. It was kind mm. of bluey green turquoise. And that, to me, kind of recalled what uh, Stephen was rambling on about. But I didn't see a rhinoceros, so maybe that's complete nonsense. <laughs> and then 
we open and it's you know who it's going to be because it's headlights driving at night yeah. and you know that only means one person yeah. um and we're on a road trip with mr c and richard uh weirdest road trip ever yeah it's really weird because i think every time we've seen this we've made a comment about the fact that it looks like the kind of footage you see in mulholland drive or lost highway but i think after this people will now think of this as twin peaks kind of styles um stuff that david lynch is doing they'll, they'll look at that same shot of headlights on the road at night and think ah that's classic mr c in twin peaks it's a yeah. weird thing how he's how it's been not repurposed but it kind of has so much more significance now um in a completely different universe yeah, and, and this is basically the most awkward father-son car journey that there has ever been. Well, it did seem at the end of the last hour that they were going to be having some discussion about what was going on. And I'm not sure if that has happened, but it looks pretty uncomfortable. And certainly it's kind of put Richard Horn back into quite a submissive kind of role again. He's yeah. he's clearly terrified of Mr. C a little. He's doing whatever he says. And he's got this look in his eyes where he's just thinking he's not sure what Mr. C is going to do next. Yeah. So they pull up in the middle of nowhere and the car is, is one of those kind of truck things that have got lights mounted on the top and you can angle them around. And the way it casts the light over the hill, it's almost like a spotlight shining, which is very lodgy in itself hmm. um, and pretends to no good. Yeah. So this also. So I'm not sure how much time has passed since they left the convenience store, wherever that was, because they. So they were in Western Montana at yeah. the arm wrestling place, the farm, and then they've been driving. Um, well, Mister C has been driving. He went to the uh, to the convenience store, and then Richard caught up with him, pulled a gun on him, etc. But I don't know how much time has passed since then. But it's clear that now they are in or near Twin Peaks. I think Cause they must be because. Uh, we see Jerry Horn later, and he must be, unless he's been running for a very, very long time, <laughs> um, we know that they must be approaching their final destination. Certainly the talk of the coordinates seem to push that way as well. Uh, one thing I did note down as we were watching it was, do you think that there's a scene in the uh, truck when they've actually replayed the same shot of Richard Horn looking at uh, Mr. C? You know how you yeah. keep having these bits which are replayed? It does look a bit like they've redone the same thing twice. Yeah, at one point where he, he looks over at him and then looks back again. And it does look like the same shot mm. used twice in the car. Yeah. So they, they pull up, they get out of the car, and Mr. C says, I'm looking for a place. Do you understand a place? <laughs> so what was that supposed to mean? I'm pretty sure he understands what a place is. But this is kind of like similar to what he said to um, Daria when he said, do you know what coordinates are? Yeah. It's like no, it's it's letters and numbers or something like that, like way back in part two. So he's like a he does his own little Mr. C preschool class for all the young people around <laughs> where he explains things. But it's very, very weird. But again, that's kind of that's quite um, that goes back to his kind of more stilted way. He he sometimes speaks. Yeah, um, he was a lot more fluent when he was talking, for example, to Philip the Kettle Jeffries. <laughs> and then he says. Three people have given me coordinates and two of them match. Now, I think this is crucial because we've been trying to figure out who the three people are. Yeah. He's got coordinates from Ray, 
that were written on the piece of paper in Ray's pocket yeah. that he but gave that, him before but, he died. But that may have just been a series of numbers and then underneath it just said, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been. He's got coordinates from Philip Jeffries, the teapot. Yeah. And a third person who may or may not be Diane. And I think that's crucial because later on when we see Diane send coordinates... Yeah. Does that suggest that she hadn't previously sent him the coordinates? And if so, has he got coordinates from somewhere else? Yeah, you're right. Because so I was trying to think about this. I I think certainly with the first two people you've named, we've definitely seen coordinates being handed over. He has been looking for them otherwise. So we might have missed something here completely. Um, it's been really hard to keep track of everything that's going on. But the people I was thinking it might be, you know, is it, you know, did he ever get? Uh, originally like a copy of Ruth's ones but maybe were they incomplete and they're all smudged on her arm yeah is it something like that so that's meant to be the coordinates he got alternatively is it from um you know did he get them from Briggs or something at some point I mean I, I keep thinking back to what may have happened you know when Mr C went and visited Briggs that night yeah, at, yeah. Uh, after the events of season two yeah you know before um Briggs puts out the Mayday message is it something to do with that or is it someone else I mean did he get it from Phyllis or, yeah. Like I don't know because maybe maybe Bill Hastings had them at some point and then Phyllis stole them because we know that Mister C knew Phyllis in a way that it has to be more than just being close to Bill to monitor what was going on. We never really figured out how that worked, but yeah, certainly there are there are three people, um, but I'm not sure who all of them are. Yeah, and he says two of them match, so he's going to check out the two that match. Yeah, and it's on top of a rock. And he tells Richard to climb up it. And he says, oh, I'm 25 years your senior, so you, you climb it. Which is very telling because he that's the gap and he knows how mm. old Richard Horn is. But it seems to be an excuse that he doesn't want to test it out because he clearly doesn't trust it for yeah. some reason. But going back to the issue of the possible parentage of Richard, he does also... So when he asks, you know, what would you do about the about the three sets of coordinates? Um, Richard said, we'll go to the two that match. And he says, you're a very bright young man. He, it is, I think that's the first set of statements which implies that Mr. C is Richard Horne's father. He's saying it almost like, you know, I'm proud of you, son. <laughs> I'm proud of you, son, but I'm still going to send you up there. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's fine. You, you go first, I'll follow. It's fine. It's all fine. Yeah. <laughs> so, um... Yeah, he goes off with a little uh, gizmo that bleeps when you get close to where the coordinates are. Yeah. Listen to the sounds. Listen to the sounds. That's what he get me one of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and who should stumble upon them? But poor Jerry, he's still lost. We thought he might have got home when yeah. he was last seen running through the fields. Yeah. Um, so he must have just been in a clearing and then he must have carried on through the woods. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, oh, people. And he's found literally the two worst people you could possibly <laughs> find. <laughs> So when he says people, do you think he means people as in, oh, great, like civilization, mm. Or do you think he means people versus non-people? Oh, yeah, could be. Do you think he's basically saying, oh, thank goodness, at least I recognise those people in some way, rather than, you know, I presume he must have had some interaction in the woods. They may not go back, but I don't know. But if he's met the woodsman or something, yeah. you can imagine that he's like, okay, these are real people. Because he, he might have even con uh, confused a woodsman for a person. Mm. And I doubt that ended well. <laughs> But he, he's got his binoculars with him, thankfully. He doesn't just run up to them. Yeah. That would have ended badly. He's got his binoculars with him, but he uses them the wrong way round. 
so everyone looks small. And it just reminded me of that bit in Community where Troy is then, yeah, shrink your enemies. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, go on, Jerry, shrink your enemies. <laughs> but he, he doesn't realise he's doing it wrong. He's doing like, it with one eye as well. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Jerry Horn, you're a clown. You're an absolute clown. <laughs> so um, Richard Horn goes climbing up the rock. Jerry's watching the whole thing. The when he says, like, dear God, uh-huh. do you think that's because he recognises Cooper? Or do you think it's because... Or is it because it's people? Or, or it's because they're very, very small people far away? <laughs> <laughs> well, he should remember Cooper. Yeah. Even but... in his slightly addled state. Yeah. Um, or it could be that if, if he's had some kind of lodgy encounter in the woods, it could be that he senses that there was something wrong with Mr. C. Unless he's met the fireman. Yeah. Because if he's in the woods, he may have found the vortex. And if he's found the fireman, maybe the fireman has also given him a similar message to Andy. But he's also going to recognise his great nephew. Oh, that's true. I never thought of that, yeah. And then, obviously, witnesses what happens to his great nephew. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't get that. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. That must be that must be a pretty traumatic thing for him to see. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's, that's my great nephew over there with a the guy who looks like that FBI agent who disappeared 25 years ago. My God. <laughs> um, so Richard climbs up the top of the rock. He gets to the exact place. He shouts to say that he's there. And then he seems to get electrocuted from out of nowhere. Yeah, you have that, that sound of buzzing electricity. It builds. And then all of a sudden he's like properly electrocuted. He's like zapped. And then I can't tell. So I can't tell. Did he, did he fall over or did he just disappear? Was he just kind of zapped away? It's like he explodes into into like a firework or something. Yeah. It reminded me very much of how Philip Jeffries gets around. Mm. You know, he's kind of like popping in and out of things, leaving a trail of smoke. It's almost like this was done to him rather than it was intentional, like it would have been for Philip Jeffries. Yeah, and I can't tell if he's actually just dead or if he's been zapped somewhere. Yeah. Um, and I think it depends on the intentions of the people who gave Mr. C the dodgy coordinates. Um who, at least one or both of whom must have been Ray and Philip Jeffries. Yeah. At least one of them must have given him dodgy coordinates. Yeah. Maybe both of them. Um, were they trying to kill him or were they trying to zap him back to the Black Lodge? Because Ray was definitely going to try and send him back to the Black Lodge by putting the Owl Cave ring on him when he died, even if he didn't necessarily know that was the purpose behind yeah. doing it. So I don't know if Richard is dead and gone or if the next time we're in the Red Room, there he's going to be. Yeah, although it's notable that, you know, skipping ahead, he doesn't appear later on when we do return there. That's true. So, um, yeah, something funny has happened. Because certainly they wanted they wanted Cooper back in, Mr. C back in the lodge, didn't yeah. they? So if it was a trap to, ca- to capture him, you would think that it would mean that Richard ended up there. But we don't know. Maybe if he's human, it doesn't work. Although if potentially he is the son of a doppelganger, maybe he is similarly a lodge-like character, so he can transport that way. But we haven't seen the conclusion of that, maybe. No. Um, and, or, yeah. and Mr. C seems quite blase. And, and we finally get confirmation where he's just like, goodbye, my son. And then off he goes. Yeah. It was like, my goodness. <laughs> it's odd. The way he says it, though, I'm not sure if he actually told... Richard in the car that he was his father it almost sounds like he's saying it now he feels comfortable saying it because Richard's gone yeah um but even his initial oh 
was very much like Gordon Cole's, he's dead. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, he must have then realised it was a trap, I presume, yeah. um, to get him zapped away. But also, do you think now that this has happened, it will mean that although it's not going to happen in this hour, there is going to be some resolution of the events surrounding the parentage of Richard Horn. Because we now know that that's confirmed for a reason. You know, we know that Mr. C is very likely to be Richard's father and Audrey is his mother. Now, that would be a completely weird subplot to have included if there wasn't some repercussion for that later on. Yeah, and I think it might depend on where Audrey's storyline actually goes and who Mr. C or even who Good Cooper interacts with when he gets back. What I'm not sure of is whether, even if they didn't have a chat in the car saying, Richard, I am your father, um, did, is that what Richard was suspecting yeah. when he looked at him? He must have thought, well, I don't know who my dad is, and my mum had a picture of you, and you disappeared. But he knows he's an FBI agent, and yet he pulled a gun on him. Yeah, or did, or did he think that the disappearance was because he was dodgy? Could be. I mean, he's, he's just watched him kill someone by punching him in the face. Or denting his face. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Collapsing his face. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think that Richard had was thinking maybe he is. But if he is, he was probably pretty pissed off with him for yeah. disappearing. I don't know. I, I just don't know if this is the last we see of Richard Horn because it's a weird end for his storyline. Because there's so many people looking for him. Yeah. And who is going to tell them what's happened? A completely stoned out of his mind, Jerry, yeah. is going to turn up and say, hey, Brother Ben, uh, I just saw your grandson yeah. get electrocuted into a firework and he was hanging out with Dale Cooper. <laughs> well, the thing is, I think we've got Richard and now we've got Ray, who are you know, the latter of whom was shown going in some form to the uh, to the Red Room, yeah. at least. So I wouldn't be surprised if part of the crazy final two hours involves... Uh, you know, a lot of people in various iterations in the Red Room in the Black Lodge. Yes. Um, a lot of characters have ended up there. And it may be that that is how we have some confirmation of what may have happened to them. Because these are Lodge characters. They're not um, like the doppelgangers, necessarily. These are people who have been taken there. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's going to be resolved in a very interesting way. I think I think there will be some resolution to that when Cooper returns to Twin Peaks. Yeah. But Jerry is obviously freaking out about this because he starts shouting bad binoculars, bad binoculars, and hitting them on the ground. And um, at least his binoculars didn't respond like "I am not your binoculars." (laughs) (laughs) And then Mister C sends a text with a smiley face and capital letters all. Yeah. And off it goes, presumably to Diane, or it goes to Diane because she gets it later. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it's quite funny because. 2.05 2.05 a.m. is the time that he sent the text. Yeah. And that was the time that we should have been watching the episode if it had been on at the normal time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a good move, Sky Atlantic. That's a last minute to mention that. So now back to Las Vegas, and we're at Lancelot Court, where Hutch and Chantal are now stalking out their second target in town. And they're hiding in a van wearing, looks like kind of cleaning overalls. Yeah, you can tell what, what kind of ruse they're going to pull when it comes to this hit. Okay. Unless they're there to kind of wear overalls that you can clean up afterwards, because maybe this was the one where she was planning to uh, 
to inflict some torture, which you haven't done in a while. Mm. Or maybe that's what you wear to keep Cheetos dust off you. <laughs> She's eating a lot of Cheetos. Um, it's basically the floor of the van is littered with junk food packets, yeah. isn't it? And she's very unhappy when she runs out. Mm. So they're watching the house, and they obviously haven't seen anyone come in or out. And then the FBI turn up and knock on the door and look in the windows. So you've got Hutch and Chantal watching the FBI trying and failing to get into the house. And poor Wilson. Oh, I feel really bad for Wilson. He can't do anything right. Yeah, Headley is just always shouting at him. Yeah. But I'm also really liking Headley. <laughs> he reminds me of uh, his kind of sarcastic, kind of brutal, cynical tone. It reminds me of, um, I can't what his name was, but the dude who played the principal in Back to the Future. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and the kind of infuriated nature with his kind of useless team yeah. um, occasionally reminds me of uh, Ford and Decker from G vs Z, mm-hmm. uh, but without without the uh, kind of underlying warmth <laughs> that they had. Yeah, yeah, and that same level of um, like ineffectiveness, it really reminds me of uh, Sky Atlantic and Now TV. <laughs> It's the last time I'm going to mention it. It's the last time. It's the last time. It's fine. So he, he orders Wilson to park up and stake out the house. Yeah. Um, and then the rest of them are going to go to Lucky Seven and see if they can find Dougie there. Yeah. So Hutch and Chantel think that the FBI have all gone, but really Wilson and his partner have parked up at a different part of the street. Yeah. So now you've got two sets of people watching the house. Yeah. And one thing I thought was kind of... Uh, annoying because you know when you start watching things really closely and it may just be if you're watching it in the middle of the night it's the fact that uh the cheetos appear and disappear on the dashboard of Ooh. the van which really annoys me that kind Ooh. of you know lodge so cheetos m- lodge che- <laughs> doppel cheetos <laughs> doppel cheetos maybe if you eat them maybe put a ring the alcave ring on the cheetos mm. and then you eat them the ring disappears and the cheetos return to the black lodge <laughs> that's what happened in between scenes i don't know just speculating very late so then we cut to hospital where dougie coop is in a coma in fact just said hospital was pretty uh, pretty accurate it was just a generic set of like a little <laughs> bit of a ward if the camera had panned left or right there would have just been the rest of the of the shooting stage there was nothing there <laughs> no judicious use of curtains i think <laughs> at some point was it yeah hospital they have lots of curtains don't they put some more curtains over there it's all fine you see one doorway it's all, all right so Janie, Sunny Jim and Bushnell are all there. And Sunny Jim asks Janie, does the coma have something to do with electricity? Mm. And she says no, but then Bushnell says, oh, well, in this case it does. Yeah. Which is a weird question yeah. to us. He seems kind of, well, it seems to be maybe just a child asking a question about what has caused this. And he knows that what happened beforehand must have been Dougie Coop. Um, well, at that point, he might have even been Dale, I suppose, because he'd, he'd realised maybe after seeing, after hearing Gordon Cole's name, you know, he must have known that that's what happened with uh, him sticking the fork in the plug socket. So that might have made him ask the question. Yeah. And then the whole of Team Mitchum yeah. turn up. Yeah. Uh, Mitchum Brothers, Candy, Mandy, Sandy, bearing food yeah. and flowers and asking for the house key so that they can stock the house. And immediately yeah. you're thinking, oh, I know where this is going. Yeah. If they're going to go to the house. And then um, it's one of the Mitchum brothers as well who asks, so it was like, what, electricity? Yeah. <laughs> but it's weird that none of them are using the word 
electrocuted. Yeah. They both say electricity. Yeah, like the actual, the form of it is the thing that can inflict this on somebody. Yeah. Which is a weird, it's a weird choice of phrase, but very notable here. And certainly if you, if you read interviews with David Lynch, he does talk about electricity a lot as mm. an entity. And I think it has, it, it obviously has so much meaning in the world of Twin Peaks, but it is seemingly being pointed out that that is the thing which is involved in all these different lodge transactions which are taking place. And certainly the the, the two things I think are kind of interesting are, um, as well. One is that I noticed that Sonny Jim is wearing his like yellow hoodie. Yeah. And given that we watched, um, what was it, part three yesterday, it just reminds me of the original jacket that, uh, yeah. that Dougie wears as well. It's the same kind of mustard yellow one. Um, the other thing was when, I think just before Sonny Jim asks about the electricity thing, Janie E says something like, oh, people can be in comas for years or something. I can't remember exactly what the phrase was. Yeah, yeah. And I think that was a very telling thing, again, in the context of this hour, because we have characters who are who are about to emerge from a long period of time when they've been in a coma, essentially, um, or in the process of emerging from it. And, you know, how is it they're meant to kind of, you know, a return to their original lives in some way after being away for... Um, for so long and even that like um one last bit because i remember i i noticed it just i've been reading a lot of the articles on the 25 years later site which is fantastic you should go and check out that website because it has so much really good stuff being posted there's been so much there which has really in very clear terms explained some of the iconography that you're seeing from the wizard of oz Mm -hmm. in this and it was very interesting i think that shot where you see cooper lying on the hospital bed yeah and you see all the people kind of crowded around one side all looking over him and to me that immediately jumped out as that bit near the very end of the wizard of oz when dorothy wakes up from her dream as it Mm. were and uh her uncles and everyone are all standing around here the ones who've who've appeared in her dream as all the different characters etc just it was framed in a very similar fashion and i think it was one of those moments where you start looking into all this Wizard of Oz stuff, you start seeing it even more, I think. Yeah. yeah. And then we jump very briefly to Buckhorn, where Cole is standing in front of those banks of crazy blinking machines hmm. that they've taken with them to set up in the hotel. And he's just standing there listening and looking at the lights and listening to the bleeping as if he's trying to discern something hmm. from it. And then... We're not there for very long and we go back to Las Vegas to the hospital room where Dougie keeps heart monitors beeping. Yeah, do you think do you think there's some do you think given that Cole had that vision of Laura, do you think that he has some kind of psychic kind of sense about what's going on that's actually connected to all that equipment in the room? Because it does to me, when I see that stuff, it looks like the kind of old school military equipment you might have maybe found at one of the listening posts that Major Briggs was at. Yeah. That's how it seems to be. All these old style monitors and bits of radio stuff and kind of heavy duty cabling and modular bits of equipment all connected up. It doesn't seem modern at all, which is fine. So I know that he doesn't always use, you know, it's fine because he doesn't always use uh, technologically advanced equipment or, or modern equipment but it does seem like it's kind of out of date but the way he's listened to it you're right it does seem like he's tuning into something um which is maybe happening there and the fact it jumps to buckhorn is very very telling 
Yeah, like I couldn't tell us, is he somehow sensing that something is happening? Yeah. Or is he hearing, is he hearing the the, hosp- the apartment monitor somehow? Somehow, yeah. Well, he senses later on when Diana's coming. Yeah. So I do wonder if he's just able to have a sense of things which we haven't really discussed. And maybe that's what makes him, you know, the current head, essentially, of the Blue Rose Task Force. Because, you know, Cooper was always a strong sender. And maybe, and, you know, in my life, my tapes have so much about how Coop clearly had some slightly supernatural powers as well. Maybe Cole has a similar way of doing things. And also, especially after his strange Monica Bellucci dreams, maybe he's <laughs> able to get messages in those as well. Yeah. And then we go back to Las Vegas... Um, as we said, his heart monitor's bleeping. Janie takes Sonny Jim to the bathroom and Bushnell gets a call from Phil Bisbee saying that the FBI have turned up at Lucky Seven looking for Dougie and that they left ten minutes ago and they were heading for the hospital. So we know that they're on their way and that time is presumably short before they're going to turn up. Yeah, and the camera at that point kind of looks looks over Cooper. It's kind of looking down on him. And it's strange. I don't... I mean, it's... You know, maybe we're looking too too much into it, but even when Carl McLaughlin has a static expression on his face, you can kind of tell when he's, you know, eyes closed, not doing anything. You can tell when he's Cooper. You can tell when he's Dougie, and you can tell when he's Mister C. Yeah, it's very because even then you can tell at that point that Cooper is back. Yeah, his face is kind of, it's quite serene and quite composed. Even though it's even though he's unconscious, it's very very weird. I, like I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because I was expecting him to come back. I don't know, but he doesn't. You know, he he's able to portray these characters even when he's not doing anything, which is actually remarkable. And then back to Lancelot Court, where you know have Hutch and Chantel watching the house, Wilson and his partner watching the house. Chantel gets angry because she's run out of snacks. <laughs> Um, and then another one of these little bizarre conversations between Hutch and Chantel, where Hutch saying, remember that guy Sammy? He passed away. He was a good guy. I owed him money. <laughs> who's Sammy? I want to know who Sammy is. Yeah. What happened to him? It's remarkable how every single character has a mini arc and an incredibly rich backstory, even though they're on screen for such a short space of time. I think I can almost understand why some people have felt that thus far in the return some of the original Twin Peaks characters feel a bit short-changed in what they've been allowed to get story-wise because to be honest I don't know how long it has been in total but Tim Roth and Jennifer Jason Lee haven't had long but they've had some wonderful scenes with tremendous depth in them. So then the Mitchum clan turns up en masse with another van following them full of catering (laughs) And they they all just watch in bemusement as this bizarre parade of people trudges into their house carrying stuff. Yeah, like Hutch's, what is this now? You know, it's <laughs> like the most, uh, I think at this point you can tell this is going to be some standoff involving a lot of people that's about to take place. You just don't know how many people are going to get involved and who's going to get involved as well. Yeah. And what I thought quite interesting is that Hutch says, oh, is any of them Dougie? And Chantel asks, does any of them look like our boss? Hmm. So so he's clearly told them, the person that you're going to kill looks like me. Yeah. And then I realised, actually, he probably would have had to, because otherwise they would be completely freaked out, wouldn't they, when they turned up yeah. to kill someone, and then it looked exactly like their boss. Yeah, it might have been that they would have thought that they were trying to arrange a... that, that Mr C was trying to arrange a hit on himself or something, or got confused, or it, it could have been a complete shambles. But even then, it does end up being a complete shambles. <laughs> it does. Because... 
so this is where it goes bonkers not just in terms of what happens in the episode but in terms of just general basic narrative structure like you you set things up when you're plotting a story right you set things up for them to have a payoff so you set up the possibility of certain characters coming into conflict and then they do come into conflict and the audience or the reader or whoever feels like yes that was what I expected to happen that was what I was rooting to happen or something like that and we've been thinking all this time who is it that's going to take out Hutch and Chantel will it be Cooper when he regained his senses Mm. like he did with Ike the Spike will it be Bushnell will they go after the wrong car and is Bushnell finally going to get to hit someone Um, will it be the Mitchum brothers And when you see the Mitchums going to the house, yeah. you think, oh, maybe they're going to get into some kind of shootout yeah. with them or something like that. It could be t- like Tony Sinclair in self-defence or something. It could, yeah. be any- it could be anything. Yeah. Is it is it going to be the FBI now they're outside yeah. the house? It could be ed- any number of these people. It could have been Cole and the gang turning up. It could have been anything. But the one thing that we didn't have in the pool was a Polish accountant who yeah. lives next door. Yeah. Zawacki. <laughs> Zawacki accounting. That was bizarre. It's, it's one of those things which really tells you that when they come up with these things in Twin Peaks it's it's a product of both Lynch and Frost that they are masters of being able to tell you stories that involve truly unexpected twists and turns that do often have an element of saying you know one this would be what you least expect but two sometimes very strange things happen yeah at the strangest moments that you could never have predicted and they happen in very normal environments. You know, yeah. this is like a a little suburban crescent where you know even even I think the Mitchums point it out later on. This is just a strange series of events unfolding. But technically, it doesn't seem out of the ordinary or, or particularly strange. It just seems that like this is a series of bad coincidences that are taking place, um, and they sort of conspire to wrap up simultaneously a variety of different plot lines. Yeah. And it's funny because for a show that in some ways is completely unreal and surreal, it also has things happen that are more real than a show would normally do. Because normally a show would abide by narrative convention and it would pay off one of the things that had been setting up in terms of who Hutch and Chantel were going to come into Mm. conflict with. I I don't think any other show on TV would get away with saying, and you know who does do it in the penultimate episode, a completely random character that you've never seen before and will never see again turns up and gets into a shootout with them. Any other show, you would have whoever it was in charge saying, no, you can't do that. Because that's not what the audience is expecting. That's why Twin Peaks is not any other show. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) exactly. So, yeah, a very angry Polish accountant who's upset with them for parking too near his driveway. Yeah, and he has this ominous, I will move the car. Yeah. (laughs) And you can, yeah, at that point I knew he was going to try and ram it. Yeah. But then what happened next was, like, bonkers. It was straight out of the Lynch hit-gone-wrong playbook. (laughs) He's gone to several times, but it's always different. There's always a different play he does in this scenario. And it it was just wonderful. You You have Chantal pulling out, like, a pistol getting annoyed, getting a pistol and shooting the accountant. Hits him in the arm or something like that. Now, he he then gets gets out of his car and I thought he was like properly injured. Then you realise they've messed with the wrong person. So yeah. he goes to the boot of his car. He brings out what looks like an Uzi <laughs> and then starts firing. Then Hutch, 
escalates it a little bit further by bringing out what is it, like a shotgun or something yeah. like a sawn off shotgun I don't know what the hell but you just see it's you know it's like the the bit in Goodfellas where it's you know you bring a knife I bring a gun blah 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 it's that kind of thing it's just escalating worse and, worse. and I half expected the accountant to go back into his car and bring out a bazooka you know, <laughs> or to disappear around the corner and drive back in a tank or something because it was just it was escalating so you know so much but um you know then they they ram the car the accountant is behind it and it hits him and he kind of like he, he kind of falls backwards don't they and then they kind of drive to get out of there yeah the accountant gets up all all the while wilson is watching probably trying to work out how he's going to explain this um <laughs> you know to his boss and then it all goes properly kind of Tarantino, but probably, you know, but a more fitting use of that level of violence than Tarantino would usually do. I yes. think. Because yeah. it wasn't like pointless. It wasn't just done for show. This was like, um, I, I almost felt like these characters were going out like uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah. You know, basically there's a spray of bullets from the Uzi, which is peppering the van and inside and both uh, Chantal and Hutch are shredded by the bullets pretty much yeah and meanwhile you've got the mitchums who are kind of crouching outside the front door with their guns just watching to see what happens just letting the whole thing unfold and it's not the it's not the gangsters who get involved in this they're the ones who are there performing a nice gesture for janie and her son yeah and they're like what the hell kind of neighborhood is this And, and he replies, people are under a lot of stress. <laughs> That's why they carry Uzis in their boots. You know who else under a lot of stress? Hmm? Sky Atlantic and Now TV. <laughs> They've been receiving a lot of tweets, a lot of very angry tweets today. It's the last time, it's the absolute last time. Um, yeah, but yeah, what I did like about that scene though as well was, and it reminds, so if, you've, um, if, you, if you watch the making of The Godfather, or there's a really good book by Peter Cowie about the making of The Godfather as well, um, there's a wonderful thing which was done in those films, which is when so many characters get killed that Francis Ford Coppola always made a point of making each death scene memorable in some way, not in a grand way, but there was always some detail that made it kind of uh, something the way you would always reference that murder by a specific detail that took place. And, I, and the example he, he always gave was the fact that when a young Vito Corleone uh, kills the guy who is... Um, I think he's running like a protection racket um, over the over the city where he's growing up, and then eventually he takes over um, that whole operation himself. Um, to uh, to use a silencer for his gun, he doesn't have one, so he wraps a towel around it, and he fires this. He fires the gun at this guy, and after the shot goes off and the guy gets killed, um, the towel bursts into flames. So he's there holding a gun, and then he kind of has to kind of take the towel off and kind of pat it down and that. And it was a detail that meant that you always remember that scene for him firing the gun with a makeshift silencer, and it goes into flames. And here I thought it was nice. It's just that little moment where you see the van going off, and then it kind of hits the curb and mounts it. Hmm. And so it's not like you just so the scene doesn't end with Hutch and Chantal shown being you know shot to smithereens. It's actually the fact you see the van rolling away and then mm. it kind of mounts the curb and kind of rolls off. And it seems that that's really the ending of what you're seeing. But it's a nice little detail that makes it go beyond that kind of general splattering of violence that other films may have done. Mm. Yeah, and then Wilson finally does something <laughs> <laughs> where he uh, gets out of the car and arrests the Polish accountant. Mm-hmm. He almost looks as uncomfortable holding a gun as uh, Tammy Preston does later on in the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's it's one of those funny things because 
I assume that we'll never see Wilson again. Who knows what's going to happen to the accountant. If he even was an accountant, what kind of accountant carries an Uzi in their car? I don't know. Uh, Maybe a member of a a Zawacki Accounting Incorporated. Mm. Yeah, don't mess with them. Uh, And the Mitchums just get the hell out of there. Yeah. As you would. Yeah. But they will return. (laughs) They, They will return. They will return. So now we're back in the hospital room. And there's a hum, just like the one in the Great Northern. Yeah, it's exactly the same, yeah. Which is kind of suggestive of maybe the one in the Great Northern is also something to do with someone returning in some yeah. way. Or so, yeah, so somebody has come back at the wrong time, and they're waking up, I think. But, uh, well, I think, obviously here we have Cooper. Who do you think the other person is? Is it Laura? I think it's Laura. Mm. I think it's Laura. Um, I can't think who else would be somebody who would have returned but not in the right state that they were meant to be but that's my guess um i think certainly given that we haven't had much of laura but we've had this hum which has been permeating the episodes even when laura hasn't been in it that much Mm. i can see that being important and maybe there's some symbolism even to even to it happening in the great northern and also ben being the one who's noticing it given his Mm. history with laura as well yeah so bushnell goes to investigate the hum and Coop wakes up, he's awake, and he's Coop. Da, da, da. It's incredible. That mo- like The moment when his eyes open and he's kind of getting out of bed and ripping all the things out, you know instantly that it's, it's the real Dale Cooper. And he's back. And it's like a wonderful, wonderful moment. It's one of the bits you watch with a huge grin on your face and you're thinking, Cooper's back. Cooper's back. It, it almost feels like he hasn't been gone in a strange kind of way. It's you know for the last sixteen hours there's been this feeling of oh when's he going to come? Oh when's he going to? And now he's here. It's just fantastic. Yeah. And Mike appears before him and says, "You are awake," and then speaks for us all when he <laughs> adds, "Finally, <laughs> yes, finally." Um, and he explains the other one did not go back in. Yeah. He gives Coop the owl cave ring. Yeah. So this is presumably Mike's attempt number three at getting Mr. C back in some way. And Coop asks him, do you have the seed? And Mike says yes. And he gets up the tiny little golden ball. Yeah, the little Dougie ball. The one that, the one that emerged from him when Dougie was returned to the Red Room and kind of disappeared in a, in a puff of smoke. And that was the thing that rose up out of him, which we presumed was part of the mechanism to create him in the first place. Yeah. And Coop pulls out some of his hair and hands it to Mike. Well, I say Mike, but he's Philip Gerrard in the yeah. credits, isn't I think we'd be very careful here because I think they've been, they've been, you know, although Bob is always Bob, they've been very careful to say Philip Gerrard in the credits and maybe we haven't seen the true face of Mike yet. Um, and maybe that's going to be important later on. I mean, it, it might not be, but it all, like we never really found out the fate of Philip Gerrard in the real world. Hmm. So it could be the case that the Avatar is now also part of uh, the Lodge permanently and is and they're explaining that the Avatar is called Philip Gerard because that's the character we know him as. Yeah, and it's also just made me realise that we've never seen any of Carl McLaughlin's characters get called by name in the credits because he appears first in the credits. Oh yeah, that's true. It never says, you know... Starring as Mr. C, Dougie Coop. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah, so it's never actually had to describe Mr. C in character terms. Yeah. Mm. That's, good. That's a very good spot. 
It's like it's the biggest thing on screen. I didn't notice it at all. <laughs> <laughs> so Coop says to him, "I need you to make another one." Yeah. Which raises a question of who it is that manufactured Dougie in the first place, because Coop is seems to be telling Philip Gerard to make another duplicate. Yeah. So, so there are two, well, at least two things I thought could be happening here. It is a bit confusing, but you know, our, you know, our initial presumption was that. Mr. C had been involved in the creation of Dougie because he wanted a vessel in the real world that could be used at some point in the future should they try and get him back into the lodge after the 25 years was up. He would have another vessel that would get transported instead of him. And it seemed like that's what he was trying to do because um, he was aware he was trying to get away from electricity driving away um, at the, was it, uh, part three? Yeah, part three, 253, yeah. Yeah, 253, that's what's going on. Um, So he knew he was going to get pulled back in, but he was relying on the fact that it would be the Dougie character. The other implication from this is that maybe it was a plan that was hatched by Dale Cooper and Mike stroke Philip Gerard. But I don't really get how that would work. I do wonder if maybe they knew that plan had happened in some way, and then they were able to, um, uh, you know, do the same thing again. Because the plan is now, I think, to recreate Dougie, to return him to uh, Las Vegas and be the husband of Janie as well. Yeah. So Janie and Sonny Jim come back in, and Bushnell does, and they're all very surprised to see him awake and sitting up and talking and behaving like a regular person. And um, he asks them to go find a doctor... And then he asked Bushnell for sandwiches because he's starving. <laughs> Which, I mean, to be fair, he seems to have been living on coffee, cherry pie and chocolate cake for the yeah, last week. The same chocolate cake. Yes. <laughs> so I would be hungry if I were him. Yeah, and I forget, in the original series, he ate a lot. He was always eating, wasn't he? Donuts, cake and yeah. pie and things like that. He was always eating all the time. He went to a little picnic with Annie. Yeah. And then uh, Bushnell tells him, well, the FBI is looking for you. And then the doctor comes back in. Yeah. And it's uh, Belina Logan. Yeah. So uh, Louis Budway, who was the concierge at the original Great Northern. Mm. So we were originally thinking that, well, we knew her name was in the original cast list. And we we thought way back when, I think we tweeted about it as well, completely wrong. We thought that she would be the one who would receive the key. Yeah. Uh, 315. Because she would have been a character who may have been around all that time and she'd recognise the key. We had this grand theory about that. It's all nonsense. She's turning up as a different character. She's playing uh, the uh, the female doctor, I think it says in the credits or yeah. something. Um, but it was still nice to see a role for her in some respect. It's a nice thing when uh, Lynch and Frost are bringing back as many people as they can. Um, it's a shame they couldn't bring her back as, uh, as Louis, but uh, it's still nice to have her in it. Yeah. And she gives him the quickest checkout uh, that any kind of woken up coma patient must have ever received and it's like yeah he's fine and he wants to go and uh, Sonny Jim when they're, when they're going Sonny Jim says dad sure is talking a lot because <laughs> it clearly comes quite a shock yeah so as as Janie and Sonny Jim go off to find the car and bring it round to the hospital uh, Coop is left in the room with and now that he is kind of full Coop again and behaving like Coop again, suddenly the Twin Peaks music theme 
strikes up in full. Yeah, he borrows Bushnell's gun. He calls the Mitchams, tells them to meet him at the Silver Mustang. That they've got to get a plane to Spokane, Washington. Uh, and then he has a chat with Bushnell as the, the theme music is going. Um, he gives him a note that he can give to someone called Gordon Cole, if he ever calls up. <laughs> and uh, as he's leaving the uh, hospital room, uh, Bushnell says, you know, but what about the FBI looking for you? It's worth, it's worth the 16 and a half <laughs> hours which have passed, and the 25 years as well. Yeah, as he just looks back through the hospital doorway and says, I am the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> best moment, I think, in... That is the best moment I have seen in the return so far as a singular bit that's the bit that everyone's been waiting for and the look on his face it's like Cooper you magnificent son of a bitch (laughs) so so let's like talk a little bit about all the stuff that happens in that one scene because you know it's not just the emergence of Cooper that is the the thing it's the fact that he's come back relatively whole as well Mm. I think seeing him as Dougie for the last few weeks there was a question over whether he would come back in some way damaged by events and certainly there was that query at the beginning you know he's been in the Black Lodge for 25 years so you know that's got to do something to you in some way I mean certainly that you know the passage of time is bad enough in the real world for a lot of people in Twin Peaks (laughs) so how he's managed to survive that long and still remain as composed as he appears now is pretty impressive yeah, and the funny thing is that he seems to understand an awful lot. Like, he know, he knows about the seed, he knows about manufacturing yeah. people. It's like he's gained this knowledge from somewhere. Similar to the way that Andy seemed to gain a lot of knowledge just from watching those images when he's yeah. talking to the firemen. That he just instinctively knows all this stuff when do you he think wakes he, up. Do you think that this has been told to him by Mike over the years, in some way? It could be. Yeah. It, it it could be that there have been many more occasions when Mike has, has kind of waved at him through the ether. They <laughs> wake up, I have something to tell you. <laughs> so so what do you think, though, about, about how he knows about the seed? Do you think that... So who do you think created uh, Dougie? And for what purpose, then? Do you think it was Mr. C, or do you think it was a, um, a plan? You know, another... Or was it Mike acting on his own, but for the wrong reasons, doing something else. I I still think it makes the most sense for it to have been Mr. C because he said initially when he was talking to Daria that he had a plan for not getting taken back into the Black Lodge. Mm, mm. And I think that was what the plan was. Yeah. And when Mike shows Dougie Coop the golden ball and he says, um, you were tricked or something like that, so I, th- I think I think it makes most sense for it to Mr. C, but it could have been another another player entirely. Yeah. Who is trying to mess with things? Yeah, I think you're right. If it is, if it is Mr. C, it might just be the fact that it's clear that these seeds are known in the lodge world. Yeah. And Cooper must have realised that that's what's happened to create Dougie, and that's the person who he has replaced in Las Vegas, and he must also then realise we need to recreate him again, and he knows that this is the technology that you would do. It just seems, I think like you say, that he he seems to be so aware of everything that happened whilst he was away as well, and when he's come back, he's, you know, he's 
he's already kind of strategizing he's very assertive again and it's strange how he's able to function both in the real world and the lodge world and cope with everything it's something that only cooper could do he was able to handle you know both the mystical and the and the real world as well yeah and i i do wonder if you know when he's in the purple room with mido do you think that he might have somehow understood what what she what she was saying yeah because he does have a plan to go to the sheriff station yeah. And so he must know that that's the place he needs to be. But there is an element of where some of this information, like you say, has come from. Uh, he's. I mean, what's kind of weird is that it does seem to be that given that he thanks Bushnell, he has been fully conscious the whole time. It's almost like somebody who's been in a coma and they're aware of things going on around them, but they can't communicate. So they can hear things and they can see things, but they can't respond or acknowledge anything. So he has truly been just like trapped in the shell and then electricity has woken him up inside just like activated his spirit whereas his body was functioning uh, up until that point um one other thing so we've had the hum in the great northern yeah. and the last we heard of it really was james approaching that door in the basement of the great northern where there was a sound coming out behind it and uh-huh. that's where potentially somebody else is maybe about to return as well um now bushnell he hears the hum and he follows it which might be a distraction from, uh, what's his face, Mike. Yeah. Uh, to make sure that Mike can appear and Coop can talk to him without it looking weird that Coop is talking to a chair or something. But two things strike me about this. One, what do you think Bushnell follows? I mean, and does he find anything? Because later on he just emerges and he seems quite happy and it's, it's unclear. But the other thing is, originally when we see James in the basement of the Great Northern, the first thing we thought was, oh, that looks like the boiler room underneath the hospital where Bob was found Yeah. in the dream sequence and also actually in the international pilot for uh, Twin Peaks. Now, again, we're in a hospital actually this yeah. time and we are having the hum. So maybe this really does link to a, to the boiler room in this case. I'm sure it's not the same hospital, obviously, but there's something weird about that, which I think was an interesting callback. Mm. So I think that now that... Coop has the owl cave ring presumably he's now meant to not only kill Mr. C but to put the ring on him to return him to the Black Lodge. Yeah I think that's what's all being set up now I think the scene with Ray was very telling it was like introducing the mechanism for how it should be done Um, and it does seem like the whole arc of Cooper involves returning Mr. C back to the Black Lodge but it is unclear so here's the thing, right? It's a bit unclear what they plan to do with this. Because originally the doppelganger idea was that you split into two. It's the same person, but you split into two. You have a dark half and a light half. and something. But this seems like regular Cooper. Mm-hmm. So you have regular Cooper and you have this very dark form of him. So it means they're not really split, maybe how how it was originally described. Yeah, because it... He seems to be entirely the way that Cooper was originally yeah. before any split occurred, which was not a wholly good person. Yeah. Um, you know, he was a flawed person. He had a flame with his partner's wife. Um, you know, he, he could occasionally be a bit... Well, I, I occasionally found him a bit sinister. Yeah. But there, there was always a... 
you know, you can't have someone just be a fully good person. Yeah. It, it can't happen. But this did just seem like this was, you know, proper FBI coop. Yeah. All good, all singing, all dancing, and ready to help everyone. And it, see, it seemed a bit odd, but I, and I wonder if they will address that. Because obviously sending Mr. C back in, does it just mean they need to send him back in and that'll make him fully whole? Or it's, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of weird, because I think I'm going to have to wait till the very end of part 18. And even then, I'm not sure it will be fully explained, to really evaluate how the split of the doppelkooper has really worked. Yeah. I suppose, and how it works when potentially, um, you know, one of them goes back in. Yeah, because Mr. C is not the whole Cooper. Yeah. And yet here we we seem to have the whole Cooper. Yeah. Um, but maybe it's some kind of bizarre side effect of of him coming back out of the lodge when Mr. C isn't meant to be out there anymore. Yeah. Because Mike does say one of you must die, yeah. which presumably means that they can't both just carry on being in the world indefinitely. Yeah. Um, so what would happen if they did do that? I don't know. Hmm. I think it's not going to be as clear cut as the original doppelganger explanation. Um, but it's clear that this is largely original Cooper. And maybe they've kind of just become almost evolved into separate entities anyway. Mm. You know, so there is basically the good Cooper and a bad Cooper, and the bad Cooper needs to get put away. Um, it could be as simple as that. Um, but going back again to this idea that he's remembered everything, I thought it was really nice that scene with Bushnell where he thanks him for mm. you know everything he's done. Again, it's that moment where you realise he must have been struggling so much to um, communicate with Bushnell, and even everyone he must have also acknowledged and realised everyone was helping him out the whole time. Yeah. He was trapped inside. Dougie's shell so he couldn't really explain he like he's such a polite character he probably would have wanted to thank everyone all the time for doing it but he just couldn't so I think, I think that frustration must have been quite tough for somebody like Cooper to take yeah I feel like he's going to send a postcard to Phil Bisbee saying thanks for all the coffee yeah. <laughs> maybe a large box of uh, of uh, green tea lattes to uh, <laughs> Frank or whatever his name was yeah mm. so then we get a very brief scene uh, in the car where Janie has instinctively got into the driving seat and then suddenly Coop wants to drive and she seems a bit uneasy about this, presumably because she's worried that he's still rather Dougie-ish. Um, but no, he's he's certain that he wants to drive and uh, they manage to get out of the car park just before the FBI turn up. They're just circling around the back and they pull up just as they've gone. So, ah, sorry FBI. Um... And then he asked her, how do we get to the Silver Mustang? Which So he clearly doesn't remember that, or doesn't really remember how to get around. He remembers things, mm. he remembers people. Um, and she says, you're not going to start gambling again, are you? And it's it's kind of sad because you see how wary Janie is of the fact that he is now up and about and talking and acting independently. And Sunny Jim is, you know, excited about this, but she seems slightly scared and resigned about it. And you realise that is she worried that this is the old Dougie and he's gonna go back to his old ways again, gambling, womanising, getting into debt. You know, it, it, in her mind, 
was a kind of barely functional Dougie Coop a better husband than the actual Dougie that she had had before? And now that he's kind of uh, talking and being himself again, is the first thing in her mind not, oh, oh great. She She's thinking, oh, God, what if he goes back to being, you, you know, getting into debt and gambling and everything again? And that's immediately where her mind goes. And then as Coop is talking, she seems to feel a bit better about it. Like, no, I don't think that this is how it's going to be. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because Janie's arc, and I'm not sure if we'll see much of it beyond the ultimate resolution of a changed Dougie returning to her. Um, but I think it's interesting how she started off as, you know, the nagging wife. She was upset with him all the time. Clearly it was a very dysfunctional marriage and she was upset with him a lot. And from his behaviour that we knew, well, from what we knew of his behaviour, it seemed kind of pretty justified. But also even that moment when, you know, he brought back the money from the casino, she did seem quite materialistic, almost like at least she got something out of out of the relationship. You know, there was money at least involved. But it's actually interesting to see her having evolved over the last few hours and to have actually found that connection that she'd been missing with her husband after after this long. And I think she desperately wants that to continue above all else. There's a look in her eye which is almost like she would give up everything. All you know, the the new car, the gym set, the Four hundred and fifty, whatever thousand, four hundred fifty thousand dollars, whatever it was, um, just to have Dougie be like the uh, the version that she was growing to love again. Um, and I think they will resolve that. I think it'd be really harsh if they didn't if they didn't send back Dougie. But if they can manufacture him, they can probably manufacture a better version because it's clear they can manufacture quite good quality uh, yeah. uh, things as well. Um, but we should also point out that it was really odd, but we did we did guess this might happen. Um, I can't remember if anyone else did as well, but we, we were having this conversation with Twitter and we found the tweet. It was like sometime in July or something when we said it would be really interesting if uh, when Coop leaves, they remanufacture Dougie to replace him in Janie's life. And we were like, ah, we've got one thing vaguely correct <laughs> after the hundreds of things that we've spectacularly got wrong in all these uh, <laughs> speculations and theories we've been having. So now we're back to Buckhorn and Diane is at her usual place in the hotel bar. But this time, she's wearing a blue top. Where did the blue top come from? <laughs> has she gone out and bought a new top? Because she has gone through multiple reuses of clothes before she put that blue top on. Yeah. I've been watching. <laughs> I've been paying attention. <laughs> um, yeah, so she gets a text, the smiley face all text that Mr C has sent. And this seems to um, spark something off. Yeah, it's a trigger. It's a trigger in her. Yeah. yeah. Because she says, I remember, old Coop, I remember. Yeah. It's it's very weird. I like I was trying to work out if that shed any more light on what the message actually meant. It's almost like she's uh one of those spies who's been reactivated by a code word or something. And maybe this is a message that was meant to mean, I presume, kill everyone. You know, that's the all. Um The other thing I thought it could be, uh, would be you know when she is memorising the coordinates in a not-so-subtle fashion when she's reading them out loud yeah. to herself? Um, 
uh, he says later on, you know, it's coordinates plus two. Yeah. And I wonder if all meant, you know, send me all the coordinates. Maybe there's part of the number which, you know, so so if if she had sent the coordinates to Mr. C, but it hasn't been seen on screen, I think, hmm. maybe she only sent a partial set of the coordinates. I don't know. Um, but it does seem to be, yeah, more to do with activating a um, uh, some kind of sleeper agent uh, by sending that message. Yeah. yeah. And she replies, as you say, with the coordinates. And then she says to herself, if this works, and then looks in her bag and there's a gun and cigarettes in there. Yeah. It's interesting that he sends the message after he's seen Richard Horn being electrocuted. Mm. So he knows, so Mr. C knows that a trap was set for him. So maybe that's his kind of, okay, this is like a, a general kill everyone kind of message that's going out now. He knows that people are onto him and he's like, okay, destroy everything. And he knows that Diana's with the FBI. So he's like, you know, take out the Blue Rose task force as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah, and while she's sitting there and about to get up, we hear that strange shimmery light gong sound that you hear at the beginning of the opening credits. You know, just as it's panning over the woods and mm. you see Laura's face, you hear that kind of whooshy gong in the background. Yeah. And then she gets up and is walking through the hotel towards the room where the task force is. And the slowed down version of American Woman starts playing again. Yeah, we haven't heard since the very beginning of part one when Mr. C had his first uh, nighttime driving scene and introduction. Yeah. yeah. So she want, she walks through the corridors up to the room where they are and she's standing outside and Cole is on the inside and she hasn't knocked or anything like that. But he senses that she's there. Yeah. Like, he can sense her or he could hear her walking up, something like that. And she, he just says, come in, Diane. Um, and so she, she comes in, sits down. The, the whole of Cole and the gang are there. Yeah. It's odd up until this point that you don't know that they're in the room. Yeah. That Tammy and Diane are there. It's kind of a bit odd. You just see Cole kind of looking around at all the equipment. Do you think that he hears Diane because he's got, you know, do, do you think his hearing aid is like a bit funky and it's able to tune to different frequencies even maybe lodgy frequencies as well maybe he is hearing these hums all the time and he knows when lodge stuff is happening i don't know yeah. Yeah. well I, I don't know if um they've already intercepted the text message would they have been able to intercept it, it that could quickly be, yeah because maybe they i mean they they know that diane is in communication with somebody who they suspect is mr c probably um, so maybe they knew and that's why they're kind of poised and ready to see what's happening and they know that she's on her way but maybe that's also an FBI code word hmm. that smiley face or maybe that's something that they all know and so they're, they're, they're prepared because they know that message has been sent to her and they know that then she's going to be about to uh, you know, maybe launch a stealth attack or something yeah so she sits down and says you asked me about the night Coop came to visit me and she tells the whole story hmm. Um that uh, he just appeared in her house three or four years after he had initially disappeared. Mm. Um, she was kind of overjoyed to see him at first, but he just kept asking her about things that were happening at the FBI, mm. um, basically kind of grilling her for information. And then, uh, so, so this puts this before Dougie's manufacture, doesn't it? Because yes. Dougie was manufactured in 97. Yes, yeah, so... so... We're assuming that the original events take place in 
you know, it's kind of a bit vague now because technically it's 89, but there's, it's always been unclear whether it's 89, 90. Um, if it's three or four years afterwards, that would place it 93, 94, maybe pushing it a couple of years if it's just a vague statement. And Dougie's records appear in 97, I think, yeah. isn't it? So. Yeah, so then he kisses her, which she says is something that had only happened once before. Mm. Um, and then his face changes, and she must be talking about seeing Bob in him. Yeah, so back, it was a while ago, maybe part four or something, when um, Mr. C is in Yankton Prison, and he has that scene in front of the mirror where he says, are you still with me? Good. And, and you see his face morph a little bit and and the appearance of Frank Silver's Bob appears on him. So this is saying that back then, obviously Bob was inhabiting him and feeding on her fear, which she directly refers to. Um, Bob sort of takes over uh, for a few moments um, the facial appearance of uh, Mr. C. Yeah. Although do you think at that point he had his long hair? Or do you think he had Bob's face? Frank Silver's face on like Coop with uh, with his usual hair. I don't know. Yeah, it's a because I can't imagine what he'd look like with his kind of neat hair. Yeah. I mean, it's it seems obvious now because he has the lank hair that. Uh, anyway, that's that's a tangent and it's completely irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. So Diane basically goes through the whole um, kind of very emotional story where she explains that um, Cooper raped her. And then um, took her to an old gas station yeah. or something that looked like an old gas station. and Which, of course, we know is the convenience store. Yeah. She's got the phone in her hand and she's clearly struggling to tell the story yeah. because she's been bottling this up for so long. Yeah. And she looks at the text again, the smiley face all. And, it, and again, it seems to to do something to her because she starts saying I'm a sheriff's station I'm a sheriff's station yeah uh, I sent him those coordinates I'm not me I'm not me yeah um and then she reaches into her handbag and pulls the gun out and the rest of them are all already armed so they must have been expecting yeah, yeah. something they knew something happened. and you could tell even for that bit where the whole scene it cuts back to Cole who isn't saying much he's just looking at her and looking down at the bag and knowing that something's about to happen. Um, yeah. And Albert has a, a look like he's never actually seen this happen before, but Diane gets shot and then just seems to vanish or get pulled away somewhere. Yeah, it's really odd. It's, she gets kind of whisked away, almost in the same way that Laura was whisked away in the Red Room. There's that kind of, a shot of them kind of shaking, kind of quite, quite, violently um but in a very enclosed space and then just being pulled out of the the scene almost <laughs> leaving an empty space behind yeah and obviously cole has seen this before yeah because that was the original blue rose case yeah that was the lowest stuffy one yeah um, i was um, half expecting her to say you know i like the blue rose and be that you know but but they wouldn't be that on the nose about it i think yeah, and, and Tammy is just like, wow, tulpas are real. <laughs> She's just kind of quite excited about the whole thing. Awesome, yeah. It's really, yeah, it's a... Uh, I did not see that coming. Mm, no. I knew there was something going on with Diane. Yeah. Um, I didn't know if she 
maybe thought that she was in cahoots with someone else and didn't realise she was communicating with Mr C or that maybe she's being blackmailed in some way because um, it, it, it was clear that something terrible had happened the night that he had visited her Yeah. and based on that I was struggling to see why she would then be helping him yeah. in any way particularly the way that they were with the way they spoke to each other yeah. in in Yankton prison um but i i did not see it coming that she was a doppel diane in some way yeah i think it's um it's very odd because there's a series of ways that you can view this scene as being about the triggers that she's facing um and it's almost like a, a post traumatic stress event which is unfolding in front of us but for all the ambiguity about the things that we've seen Diane do in the previous 10 odd parts that she's been present, it almost feels like, um, obviously if she is actually a, if they are doppelgangers um, and the one we're seeing is, is the doppel Diane who's been created. um, That also means that inside she would have had the memories of original Diane. So yeah. up until the point where they bifurcate, they're the same person. Yeah. And then they've split off. Now, that also means that maybe even the... Maybe even the doppelgangers don't... Re- I mean, like, Dougie didn't realise he was a... Yeah. He was a tulpa. Um, uh, yeah, because I suppose they're not doppelgangers, are they? They, they are they are thought forms. They're being... In some respect... Like, is there a subtle difference there? Between the doppelgangers being the, you know, the result of facing your shadow self in the Black Lodge being split into two whereas this is like a an actual creation um a thought creation of somebody in some respect yeah because when diane then appears in the red room yeah and mike says someone manufactured you it's the same term he uses about dougie yeah so we probably shouldn't be calling her doppel diane we should probably call it i don't know tulpa diane or something like that i don't know we don't need a term for it do we (laughs) (laughs) But, but it does feel that uh um you know she has a certain set of memories that maybe come from her being born of the original Diane but those must be filtering through to the surface which makes her very conflicted and maybe she doesn't realise that she's a tulpa which is why um, she's maybe been working for different sides all the time been heavily traumatised by the events clearly what's interesting is that this is a, this is almost a, it almost feels like the last cruel thing that Mr C can do is to make her remember mm. everything by sending this message it's not just about her it like maybe all is a way to unlock all of her memories mm. you know um it's quite a sinister thing to think about but it's almost like when he was speaking to diane it did feel like it was mr c talking to the original diane and he was taunting her a little bit and now you get the sense that maybe he's doing it again by flipping a switch that not only activates her sleeper activity to start killing people um, but also to remember all these things, which I think is almost very, it's its a hideous thing to think about, but it's very in keeping in the kind of thing that Mr. C would actually do. Yeah. And then in the Red Room, she gets, to, first of all, she says, I know when mm. Mike says someone manufactured you. Yeah. So she's clearly got some memory back that means she's aware that she isn't yeah. real. And then she gets to give one last fuck you. <laughs> yeah. Which is to Mike. Which, uh, yeah. I, I, I didn't see that coming either. Yeah. Um, and then her face cracks open like an egg, yeah. like an eggshell. Yeah, so that's not the same as how Dougie went. 
No. It's just a different visual effect that they're using to represent it. I like that bit at the beginning where she's kind of adjusting her jaw and it's like, you know, a snake can dislocate its jaw to kind of open it up to eat more stuff. It, she just looks... It's something like a very inhuman move to do. Very subtle, but one which makes you really kind of think something weird is about to happen. But you know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and Mike does his usual thing where he covers his eyes. Yeah. Um, and then her head kind of cracks open, I suppose. You see the black smoke and then the, the seed appears. So there's a seed for a tulpa version of Diane floating around as well. Yeah, which begs the question of what happened to the real Diane. Yeah. Is she still in some other accessible plane via the convenience store yeah i wonder because i think it's it's interesting that they that they have referenced the fact that that's where mr c took her but also in the previous hour we now know that the convenience store is almost an access port for other places as well yeah so we don't know if maybe he left diane somewhere there um to what end we don't know but it again calls back you know that scene I think we mentioned it last week when we saw the scene of Mr. C walking with one of the woodsmen down a long corridor. Yeah. And we thought that looks very much like the bit in the original teaser trailer, which was in shadow where you saw what looked like Dale Cooper, because he was all in a suit, walking along a dark corridor as well. And we thought, well, that means that Cooper is going to go to the convenience store himself. I do wonder if he's going to, uh, you know, it's going to be like Taken. It's going to be just <laughs> like the film Taken. He's going to call up like... You know, Philip Jeffries, and so I have a very special set of skills, you know, and he's going to burst in there and get Diane. I don't know, but, but he is going to go there, I think. And I do wonder if this is one of the reasons why he's going. Um, but also, it's interesting that now we can probably say that, to be fair, they never gave us Diane. So we all thought originally, oh, Diane's going to be in it. It's going to be a bit weird. She's a character who was best left off screen. Then they gave us Diane, and we all grew to love Diane as a character. But it turns out we didn't really see Diane anyway. No, because who knows how similar or different Tulpa Diane is to the real Diane or how the real Diane would be now. Yeah, because even, I mean, certainly Tulpa Dougie was not the same as uh, as, uh, Cooper. (laughs) No, he was, um, you know, he was a a gambler and a um, a womanizer. But they must have made him to be like that, especially as you need, because you need a hair to, you know, probably with the DNA in it yeah. to combine with the seed in order to make the tulpa. So who's, is there like another, is it like the long lost brother of uh, Dale Cooper who's in My Life, My Tapes? <laughs> who's a, you know, who I think he went to be a lumberjack or something uh, in that. I mean, maybe he turned out to be a gambler. And so, and that's, that's a weird tangent as well, you know. We'll avoid that. But there is some reason, I think, why that's the case. Although he wasn't a car accident, wasn't he? He was, So yes. maybe they would... So maybe that maybe it was Mr. C and he wanted just to plant someone. But there must be a question over what memories a Tulpa has because presumably Douglas Jones believed that he was Douglas Jones. Yeah. And did not have any memories of being an FBI agent named Dale Cooper. So how many of Diane's memories or how much of her personality did Tulpa Diane get designed to have? Yeah. And and why why would they want a Tulpa in her place anyway? Yeah. Um, what purpose did that serve? Um, I Was it really just kind of 
in case she was ever useful. Yeah. Was was Mr. C just trying to get rid of her because she had seen that he was Bob and they didn't want her telling anybody. But they could have just got rid of her. Yeah. It seems it seems a bit odd. I think it's also one of those plot points which I can't really see being resolved. Why they would create the Tulpa version. Um unless it's something that somebody else has done. Again, maybe it's some other person who created the Tulpa version. Um, so maybe we, you know, we're assuming that the communications are between Diane and Mr. C, but maybe her creation was a separate thing. And maybe that's nothing. Maybe Mr. C realised somehow by seeing Richard electrocuted that the Diane he knew was a Tulpa. Although you'd expect that as a Lodge denizen himself, he would know what a Tulpa was. Yeah. Or sense it in some way. I don't know. But that is an interesting question, actually. So then we go back to Las Vegas and we're at the Silver Mustang Casino where um, the Mitchums are waiting for Coop and asking him where it is that they're going. Yeah. And Coop takes Janie and Sonny Jim aside to basically say goodbye because he's got a plan where he's going to go and presumably a manufactured Dougie is going to walk back through their front door again one day. And I think knowing Cooper and knowing what happened last time, again, it's the reason why it probably wasn't Cooper who created Dougie. Dale Cooper is not a dick. So he (laughs) wouldn't have sent a Dougie out into the real world. Yeah. Um, So he clearly is thinking, I'm going to fix this as well. He cares about people and he's going to fix it. Yeah, so when he's talking to them, he, he's basically trying to say goodbye without making it seem like he's not coming back. Yeah. Um, and they start to sense that it's something like that because Sonny Jim gets very upset and says, no, you're my dad, you're my dad. And he says, yes, I am your dad. Um, but Janie E, I think now knows that he's not Dougie. Yeah. Because not only does, does she ask him at one point, you're not Dougie, and he's like, oh, well, yeah, I am. I have to go, but you'll see me soon. I'll walk through that red door and I'll be home for good. Yeah. But then as he's walking away, Jenny kisses him and says, whoever you are, thank you. Yeah. So she she clearly knows. I mean, there, there were too many signs, really, Yeah. that he wasn't Dougie. Not just that he looked a bit different. And, you know, was fit, was fitter and had different hair and everything else and just seemed like a different man and now clearly seems like a different man. Yeah. Um, that, you know, she, I think she knows that he's not Dougie, but she seems okay with the idea that he or someone is coming back. Yeah. And to be fair, he is actually Sonny Jim's father because Dougie as a tulper is made from his hair and a seed. Yeah. One of the golden balls. So he is technically the son of Dale Cooper. Yeah. So it's interesting also that Dale has that sense of responsibility um, as well. Uh, but it's also odd, this whole this whole idea that Janie is aware of what's happening now. Because like you say, she must have been aware the whole time as well. But she chose not to believe it in some respect because this was what she'd always wanted as well and, and now 
I think even he knows that as well. He's been aware of how much she has looked after him yeah. as well. So she's probably thinking, so he's probably thinking, I have to make this right. And I think that's something that's going to be dealt with, I think, a lot in the last couple of hours. There are many things that Coop has to make right. Yeah. Um, and I think this is one where they're setting up now where you can imagine it'll just be a cutaway scene, I think, in the final two hours where Dougie returns home, but in a better condition than he was when he left, I think. Yeah, because presumably if Dale has any input into what kind of Dougie gets sent back, yeah. it's going to be someone who is a bit more capable and decent yeah. than the previous Dougie Jones was. Yeah. I mean, certainly... I mean, maybe maybe you can choose in some way what happens. Uh, you know, Or maybe, maybe Mr. C has just really shitty hair. <laughs> and as uh, Cooper leaves to get in the uh, the Mitchum copter or whatever it's called uh, on their way to Spokane, Washington. It's kind of interesting. You just see on one of the screens on the slot machines, you see a, a green or blue scarab beetle. Yeah, it's really prominent on screen as, as the yeah. camera kind of slightly turns a corner. Yeah. And I don't know if this is just the slot machine that happened to be there when yeah. they were filming, but we had a quick look at what the scarab beetle symbolises. And uh, this is literally just a quick Wikipedia <laughs> job. Um, in ancient Egyptian religion, the scarab beetle was connected with the sun god Ra and was seen as a symbol of the heavenly cycle and the idea of rebirth or regeneration. Yeah, and if you think in terms of uh, animal totems as well, which might tie into some of the Native American mythology we see as well throughout uh, Twin Peaks... A scarab beetle actually represents somebody who's highly sensitive and sentient, who has the gifts of clairvoyance and clairsentience, which certainly is something which, to an extent, represents aspects of Cooper as well. Mm. So it does feel almost like we're seeing, you know, I mean, it's it's purely, a, you know, some way of interpreting this symbol. And, and there's probably a lot of extensive information and you probably know even more about it. So do tweet us and let us know you know, even more, but it does seem to kind of imply this, you know, it is the return of Cooper mm. uh, very broadly, but there must be some deeper meaning to it. So get in touch and tell us. Right, so now we're in the limo riding with the Mitchums to their private jet. Yeah. And I have to say, I know that he saved them $30 million, <laughs> but they're seriously going out of their way to help him, aren't they? I think it's part of that. Well, it started off as an arc about aspects of the surroundings of Cooper's life being involved in helping him it then also showed elements that Cooper himself showed which was to do with how he was able to improve other people's lives uh, just by kind of nudging them in the right direction but more recently I've noticed that the Mitchum plotline has been about the subversion of expectations that you have with certain characters so these are meant these were introduced as like these uh these Las Vegas gangster casino owners, they're first seen beating up the former pit boss. Um, and it didn't seem like these were the people who you wanted going up against Dougie, who was at that point extremely um, like unable to defend himself, certainly. Mm. Um, but then over time, and with the events that have taken place where Dougie has you know, accidentally, to a point, helped them... Um, they revealed their true character, I think, which is maybe, yeah, they do run a criminal enterprise, but 
they they do trust him and he's he is a friend and i think in a strange kind of way they're although they are criminals they don't seem to be being portrayed as the kind of evil that we see in characters like mr c for yeah. example it's almost like you know how coop had a mild affiliation uh and tolerance of the vigilante activities that were carried out by the bookhouse boys uh-huh. you know he's he's willing to turn a blind eye to certain things and i think in this case he understands probably given that he's been conscious i think of a lot of the events that have been taking place he is aware of what the mitchams have done for him and maybe he's also happy with the fact that they've helped out at least in the short term in a very material way uh janie and his son sonny jim because he must still be thinking this was my wife and this is my son Mm. Uh, so that must mean something to him still and he's probably appreciative of what they're doing there yeah and he's filled the mitchums in on everything (laughs) Uh, which is presumably where one of them is asked for a Bloody Mary, yeah. even though it's uh, early in the morning. Which is Sarah Palmer's drink of choice. Yeah, yeah. Well, Coopy is drinking coffee in the back of yeah. the limo. And so he, he's filled them on and everything, and they say, so, to get it straight, you're an FBI agent who's been missing for 25 years, and we're going to Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. Which is the equivalent of that bit where he's waking up at the start of season two, and Lucy fills him in. In some respects. Yeah. But kind yeah. of an inverted version of that. Yeah. But it's the one that basically says, look, things are about to get real. This is the uh, amount of exposition that you need now. Las Vegas is basically done. Yeah. You've got to go to Twin Peaks. Yeah. And they say, Dougie, we love you, but we are not traditionally welcome at such places. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, oh, that will change. I am personally witness to you having hearts of gold. <laughs> and Candy says, they do. They really do. Mm. Um. Now, I, I hadn't anticipated that the Mitchums would actually physically end up in Twin Peaks, had you? No. Well, I can't remember. Did we have this conversation with Lindsay and Aidan at Bickering Peaks? Or did we have it in one of our episodes? Or have they all just merged into one long thing of just talking to a microphone at people everywhere about <laughs> Twin Peaks? I, I can't remember. I'm sure we were talking about the fact that we could... that we. We guessed that one thing that might happen would be, you know, the Mitchums taking them to, sorry, taking uh, Cooper back to Twin Peaks. And it would be something, I think it was when there was first the reveal of the coordinates in Twin Peaks. Uh-huh. And we thought, okay, that means that Gordon, so Cole and the gang are all going to head there. That it's going to be the Mitchums taking Dougie there, I think we thought originally. And there'll be some awakening in the roadhouse where Dougie would come to, um, yeah, but I think it's going to be interesting to see how much they do in the town of Twin Peaks. My guess is they're going to drop him off and probably go to the Double R and have a nice mm. slice of cherry pie. Yeah, mm. yeah. That'd be nice. But speaking of people having awakenings in the roadhouse, yeah. uh, bloody hell. <laughs> what a way to add to an already extraordinary almost hour of uh, Twin Peaks thus far. So we've We've got Cooper back. We've got his plan to go back to Twin Peaks. But yeah, we're back at the Roadhouse and we're there for a musical performance, which is going to be subverted in the extreme. Yeah, and it seems to be acoustic night at the Roadhouse. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's not ZZ Top on a CD player or, or record or something. <laughs> um, so we have the MC introducing 
Eddie Louis Severson the third, which is the real name of Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam. So we yeah. knew, so we knew he was going to show up as Eddie Vedder, I, um, I presume. Um, and in the credits, he's uh, it's well, I suppose it adds to what's going on in the scene as well. Um, in that it's not necessarily uh, reality. Spoiler, but um, yeah, he's credited as Eddie Louis Severson playing Eddie Vedder. No, he's credited as Eddie Vedder <laughs> playing Eddie Louis Severson, he's, even though Eddie Louis, Louis Severson, Severson is, is his, his real, real name. name. Yeah, figure that out. It's very, it's very early <laughs> or late, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, and this might be the most on the nose choice of lyrics of a song that they've put on the roadhouse yet yeah I, like um we haven't really listened that much to that much to the relevance of the lyrics which you probably should um occasionally it's been obvious where certain things have been talked about but this whole song which is i think called out of sound yeah is very relevant to everything that's been taking place in the arcs of uh cooper and uh, in this case audrey as well yeah so it's gone gone and I am who I am. Who I was will never come again. Who I could have been, I will never have the chance. That's deep. That's Pearl Jam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then who should appear in the Roadhouse? Finally. She's got her coat. Charlie's got his coat. They've all got their coats. And he's no longer that sleepy. <laughs> no, he's, he's very awake. And they've all uh, rocked up for a bit of Eddie Louis Everson the Third. <laughs> So they get seats at the bar. They get a couple of martinis by the look of it. Charlie says, here's to us, Audrey. And she replies, here's to Billy. Yeah. Which does not seem to go down well. Uh, And then just as Eddie Louis Severson III is finishing up his set, the MC announces, ladies and gentlemen, Audrey's dance. Yeah. Which is the moment which... I did not expect to see happening at all. It's a weird meta moment, I suppose. But the MC is introducing the music that was played way back at, in episode two, three or so of season one, when Audrey went to the Double R Diner, put the music on the jukebox and did her famous... Well, she's sitting there for a while. She does that thing with her finger around the rim of the coffee, which we saw Monica Bellucci do as well in Gordon Cole's dream, and says, uh, God, I love this music. Isn't it? Isn't it just too dreamy or something like that? And then does her kind of dreamy dance, uh, kind of lost in her own world uh, on the floor of the double R as other people are watching. I think she's with Donna at some point as well. Um, and it's like one of the most iconic scenes. And she hears this music playing. It's introduced as Audrey's, Audrey's dance, yeah. isn't it? So it's it's the music which Audrey has played before on the jukebox. It's now been given the name Audrey's Dance. And immediately you twig that something is not right here. Because it's something that, as the audience, we know it as that music. But she is hearing this. And then immediately it kind of calls to her in some way. So she immediately looks quite serene. And then she slowly sort of steps down from her stool where she's sitting with Charlie. And the crowd kind of empties in the yeah. roadhouse. And there's like a strange purple light, which we haven't really seen before in the world of the roadhouse, but obviously recalls like the purple room and that world there. And she starts her dance. And it's strange, I think, for all the awkwardness of 
how some of her scenes have seemed so far, well, two or three of them, she slipped perfectly back into the original Audrey Horn. She had exactly the same gait and body movements, appearance on her face, um, as she did this dance in the middle of the uh, of the roadhouse. Yeah. Now, on her left arm, yeah. she has a tattoo, I think, yeah. or some kind of mark. She does. She has the symbol from Al Cave, which we've mm. seen on the ring. So that diamond shape with the two little um, what, antennae, wings, arms, whatever it is coming out. Certainly what is perceived as a very basic version of what could be considered the mother symbol as well. Yeah. Um, the one that was originally found, you know, in our cave on that pole that was in the, you know, in the in the cave. It's obviously been found on the ring as well. And she has it tattooed on her, was it her left forearm? I yeah. Think? And obviously the left arm has lots of significance with these um, owl cave related things or lodgy related things because the left hand ring finger is where the owl cave ring is usually worn before your arm goes tingly, etc. Yeah, and then she's also wearing a ring on her right hand, which is difficult to tell because it's quite dark. There are yeah. shots where it looks kind of like the owl cave ring, but I don't know how she could have it if Coop has it. Yeah, it's weird. So it's it's on her right hand, isn't it? It's not on the it's not on the ring finger. It's on the middle finger. Yeah, I think um, it does look a bit like the owl cave ring, and it and obviously the fact she's got the owl cave what well, looks like an owl cave tattoo on her forearm is quite telling, um, I suppose. But I don't really understand how that could fit with it being the same one. I don't think there is more than one owl cave ring, but I think it could be the case that because this isn't real potentially well because it isn't in the real world and you know maybe maybe the tattoo is real but the uh the actual ring if it is the alcave ring is um something which she's imagining in some way yeah so she's been doing this dance for a while and she seems completely absorbed by it lost in it when suddenly a fight breaks out in the crowd and someone shouts i think it's Barney, Barney, that's my wife, asshole, and then throws a bottle yeah. at someone else, and everyone starts panicking. Uh, she runs over to Charlie and she says, uh, "Get me out of here." Yeah. And then, as she's kind of staring at Charlie, saying this, suddenly she's in an entirely bright white place, yeah, with the sound of crackling electricity everywhere, and she's staring into a mirror. Yeah, it looks like a. It looks almost like a shaving mirror, I suppose. It's like a yeah. perfectly... Is it circular or square? I don't... Like one of those kind of like oval shaving yeah. mirrors, yeah. Uh, but in the... I mean, obviously, you can't see much else around her, but her appearance is different. She hasn't got her black hair and her makeup or anything like that. She... I think she's got brown hair in it, hasn't she? Which is actually her, her the hair she that Sherilyn Fenn actually has. She looks yeah. like herself, staring into a mirror in a completely white room. You can't see any features around her. Um... You know, like she's in the Matrix or something. It's very yeah. strange, but she's like there's there's nothing recognisable, and she looks panicked, confused, and almost like she has snapped out of whatever she was thinking about. Um, yeah, and as she says into the mirror, she says "what" to herself, hmm. and that's it. And then the credits. Yeah, where we have 
the band at the Roadhouse playing Audrey's theme, but backwards. Back- I think it's backwards. It sounds warped in some way, but it does. I think you're right. I think it is actually backwards. Yeah, and they've got the red curtains behind them. Yeah. And we know that basically, I think the last two hours of Twin Peaks are going to have an awful lot to explain. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm pretty certain that the guy who throws the bottle says Barney. Yeah, that's what I heard. So the one thing about Now TV and Sky Atlantic is they haven't put uh, is they haven't put subtitles on it when we're watching it. So occasionally we do miss a lot of things because we're unable to put any closed captioning on. Yeah, um, but the only other Barney we have seen or heard or of, heard of yeah. uh, way way back in Past One and Two was uh, Barney the building manager in South Dakota, who is the building manager of. Uh, Ruth Davenport's building. Yeah. Who we never meet because as Ruth's neighbour explains, uh, he's in the hospital, not the regular hospital. And he is the brother of Chip, who is in cahoots with Hank, who had the weird bag that we never knew what was inside it, who's on the phone to Harvey complaining about Harvey having crossed them or something like that. Yeah. So... I don't know. It it could be a different Barney. It could be in Audrey's imagination. I don't know what this is, but the fact that Barney was in the hospital and not the regular hospital yeah. might mean something. Yeah, so certainly it's unclear what's... Well, we'll probably have a longer discussion about this, but it's unclear what state Audrey is actually in. She's clearly alive. Yeah. And she's clearly conscious of something but maybe not what where she actually is she's not aware of her like she's not in a regular set of surroundings i think that's pretty clear um one one interpretation of things is that you know is she in the coma probably not because i think then it would have cut to her probably in a coma yeah um the alcave symbol is very notable and there was no implication during seasons one or two that Audrey was aware of all this stuff to do with uh, the lodgers yeah so she's marked with the alcave symbol she may have an alcave ring on but we don't really sure and she has clearly been having this conversation with charlie about characters who are having these strange conversations in the roadhouse in the magic booth often so there have been conversations that have involved uh so Chuck, who is Renee's husband. Yeah. There's Tina. Um who is the mother of one of the two women who were there yeah. the previous week. Yeah, the one who was talking to the woman played by David Lynch's wife. Yeah. That one. Um so there is a weird thing. So, you know, Audrey has been thinking about these events maybe you know or dreaming them in some way maybe influenced by what she's hearing whilst in another state or something yeah i mean i i assume that we will see audrey again yeah we have to have some kind of resolution to what this is i don't believe that they would go down the route of haha it was all a dream yeah like everything is being dreamt up by by audrey yeah yeah i think um the owl cave symbol must be significant because you're right. I mean, apart from the fact that I suppose that initially had they not had to 
introduce Annie and break up uh, Coop and Audrey's plot hmm. for behind-the-scenes shenanigans reasons. Yeah. Would it have originally been Audrey who went to the Black Lodge? Yeah, it could be. And maybe they're still... Maybe they're trying to fit that story in in some way. But is she in the Black Lodge or is she in the White Lodge? Well, it, it seems pretty scary if it is the White Lodge because yeah. she's clearly having a very unpleasant time wherever it is. Yeah. And the fact that you hear the sound of crackling electricity... Yeah, it's an implication that it's, it's bad. Um, but it could be that if... I mean... She could be in another place, though. We know that the um, that the convenience store links to all these different locations. Yeah. We know, for example, that uh, Mr. C took Diane to the convenience store. And we don't know what happened to Diane, but he, he put a tulpa back in her place. Yeah. We don't know if he also took Audrey there. Maybe she did emerge from her coma and he took her there. And as a result of that, he's left her there in some weird place that's linked to it all. Um, certainly there's a strange thing about whether in the in the current timeline people believe that Audrey is alive or not. Yeah. So I'm trying to think back. So Doc Hayward mentioned her. Yeah. When he said she was in a coma. And that's past tense. She was in a coma, not she still is in a coma. So at some point either she died or she came out of the coma. Ben Horn hasn't mentioned anything. Um, Sylvie Horn hasn't mentioned anything. Richard Horn was asked, "Who's your mother?" And he says Audrey Horn. That does seem like present tense. You know who? And I can't. I can't actually remember if he said if Mr. C asked who is your mother or who was your mother. I think he says who is your mother or yeah. who's your mother. I suppose. Um, but there's no implication that Audrey is dead from that. There's, there's no implication she's alive, but no implication that she's dead either. And then we've had these funny scenes with Charlie. Now, it seems almost, you know, if she was dead, they would have probably introduced that plot early on. Um, it would have been pointless to have this going on. To just, you know, because there are other characters who haven't come back. And if they didn't want Cheryl and Fenn to come back, they wouldn't have had to bring her back. Yeah. Um, they brought her back for a reason. And I think that as we and many others have suspected, the plot might actually be more important than it actually seems on the surface. Yeah. Um, it wasn't, you know, initially there was this feeling, oh, is it some kind of play that she's writing? Is it some uh, therapy that she's in in some way? I don't think so. I think she's trapped somewhere and she's dreaming of events where maybe the things that are happening are linked to what she's getting some vague sensory information of, whether it's other people talking about things that are happening or, or not. Certainly this booth business is really weird because up until the scene where Freddie and James... Uh, go and um, say hi to Renee and then Freddie ends up clocking Chuck and his friend. Up until that, all the characters were unrelated to main Twin Peaks storylines, really. Yeah. So it was, it did seem like maybe they were potentially unreal. But now we have a real event, we think at least, which is James and Freddie going there, which syncs up with a character like Chuck, which tells you that maybe the name is some is somebody who she recognises. Um, it's unclear. Do you think that she's been there for a, a long time? Or is it a recent thing? I can't tell. I presume from the, the way that Ben and everyone is talking, Audrey hasn't been around for a while. Yeah, I don't know. I 
I, I, I genuinely cannot try and guess what this answer is going to be, particularly the way that they've subverted so many things mm. um, in Twin Peaks so far. I, I feel like anything that we try and guess as to where Audrey actually is or what actually is going on with her is just going to be so wildly off whatever crazy thing they've actually cooked up. Yeah. Um, I mean, if if she is still in a coma somewhere, was that her waking up at the end or realising that she isn't anywhere? I mean, it could be the case that the trauma of what's happened to her has left her in a unhealthy psychological or psychiatric state that still doesn't explain why she's even in her because we don't see her arm uh in the scene where she's in that white room we don't know if the owl cave symbol is there yeah um there's something funny though about it because she why would she be dreaming about something where she has that symbol on her arm I actually can't remember if in, if in other scenes with her we've seen it or not. I don't think we have, um, like like that tattoo. No. Like, do you think she's aware of it because maybe she went looking for Cooper and found the lodges or something? Do you think she found a portal? Do you think she's gone to the woods and she found a portal and she went in? It could be, but it could have been a portal to an entirely different place. Yeah. So, so one really crazy idea... So the last time we've seen people who turn up with funny tattoos is when they were kidnapped in some way. Yeah. So obviously, um, Margaret Lanterman has a tattoo. Briggs has one. There's a dude called Alan who gets kidnapped with um, Margaret and I think Dougie Milk in The Secret History. I can't remember exactly. Um, And so when they get abducted, they get returned with these tattoos as well. Now, I do wonder if maybe, is it is it really crazy? Is this white light, is she, have they gone properly bonkers and put her in like some weird abduction state of lodge, of lodge spirits? You know, have they basically kidnapped her and are keeping her somewhere? Is this another lure to try and get Mr. C or Cooper? Hmm. Have, they, have they got her somewhere knowing that somebody will come to Twin Peaks? Yeah, so in in light of this situation and all these other things going on, which seem to involve all these characters converging on Twin Peaks and all these events happening, and maybe, like maybe most fundamental of all, you know, what's happened to Audrey, how do you think Coop is going to figure into this now that he's heading back to Twin Peaks? Well, he's going to the sheriff's station, isn't he? Yeah. Um, so he's going to meet everyone who's there um he's going to find out that harry is sick he's going to meet frank he's going to see hawk and andy and lucy again um he's presumably going to meet nido who is in the cells there who he must recognize yeah um and might know a lot more about because he seems to have some kind of knowledge that he's been imbued with somehow from when he was um in the lodge, they know what this, what the seed was, and everything like that. Why do you think he knows to go to the sheriff station? I I don't know, unless it's something that she told him. If she could, if he could understand what she was saying, yeah. 
or something that he instinctively feels he has to do. Is she basically... So did Nido do you think, say, I'm going to be at the sheriff's station, you have to come and find me, and then disappeared? Yeah, or, or if he thinks that that's where he's going to start looking for Laura. That's true. Yeah, we've got... Yeah, that's the fundamental thing here. We have uh, that original m- uh, mission that he was sent out on. So whether he's going to go visit Harry at any point, I don't. I still don't know if Harry will appear. See, I think they've, they've kept this back, talking about him being in hospital, but I can't imagine... Coop going to the sheriff's station, finding out about Harry, and not wanting to go and see him in person. Yeah. You know, admittedly now they might do it off camera, but he will want to interact with Harry, won't he? And say, you know, at least, you know, see his friend after this long. Somebody who was a, who, you know, who knows actually what Cooper did to Harry mm. when he left as well um, after the season two finale. So also. I still don't think that we have seen the point where Coop speaks to the fireman. Yes. Because he can't have communicated with the fireman when he was in the Red Room. Yeah. You would think that there would have been no portal open. Yeah. And he hasn't done it since. So when is he going to speak to the fireman? When is he going to get told, Rich and Linda, 430, two birds, one stone? And when are any of those clues going to get resolved? We still haven't met Linda. That's true. And we're still assuming that Richard is Richard Horn. Yeah. Now, if Richard Horn is really his son, then we, I, I presume that that means Linda is. Well, one op- option is that Linda is a daughter he has. Um, which would like, is there a chance that all the all the clues connect up this time? They're not unrelated, but you know, Richard and Linda are, are his two children in some way. Um, two birds, one stone means that you know they're both the. They're both the children of um, Doppelcoop. Mr. C. I don't know how um, 430 fits in with that. I mean, it was on the watch, you know, on Andy's watch at the time he was meant to meet the farmer who didn't make it, but I, I haven't seen much beyond that. I mean, there's so many unanswered questions that you wonder how on earth they can actually do all of this in two hours. Yeah. Like, what's happened to Becky and Stephen? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, what actually happened that made Stephen kill himself, if indeed he has killed himself? Yeah. Um, obviously what's going on with Audrey is Billy the drunk in the cells yeah <laughs> so um, much <laughs> what what happened to the real Diane yeah will we see her again and was Jenny ever actually her sister yeah that's true I mean do you think going I mean going back to the guy Billy so yeah. is that another link to the potentially the theory that Audrey is in a hospital because you know Billy has he has what looks like a you know like a nose tube thing across his face because he has a bit of gauze on the side which is holding it in place. Yeah. And now you have... So she's talking about Billy, but also a character called Barney who has just shown up in the roadhouse who was not at the regular hospital. Yeah. Do you think there's some link there or... I don't know. I still don't think that it's just going to be a coma thing that's that straightforward given that she has the Alcave symbol on her arm. Yeah. So just running through some of the other... (laughs) Open questions. What's on the note that Coop left with Bushnell to give to Cole? Presumably Cole will call him. Yeah. Are Cole and the gang going to turn up in Twin Peaks then? So I, I presume that Cole is going to find out from the FBI field office in Las Vegas that, um, maybe via Bushnell as yeah. well, that Dale Cooper has gone to Twin Peaks and he's probably going to meet me there. Yeah. But at the same time, 
I don't know what purpose they're going to serve there, but I think that beyond a reunion of all the characters, I do wonder if it's going to reveal more about Albert's role in things. And maybe, given the relevance of Laura to this whole thing as well, will there be more to, or will Cole reveal that he had his vision of Laura uh, when he was at the hotel a few hours ago? Yeah. And speaking of Laura, why is there a hum at the Great Northern? Is it someone returning? Is it Laura returning? The last person we saw going towards it was James. Yeah. Again, another person linked to Laura quite strongly. We have Freddie with his magic green glove. Yeah. Um, now, we were saying that the last... I think, I think we first mentioned that maybe it meant that Freddie was going to be banging on the door to get in. And that was a sound that the American girl was saying was the mother outside the purple room bit. You know, when she's saying mother is coming and she, there's bangers. Or maybe that was actually Freddie and James banging on the outside. But yeah, the other thing is we now know that Freddie is in jail. We still yeah. know how that really works because it, it, maybe James just had a look around. He heard the hum and that was it. And he left. Um, but yeah, I get a sense that there is somebody who's going to emerge in the Great Northern. Yeah. Where Mr. C's coordinates taking him to? Well, presumably to the sheriff's station. If if that's what we can interpret from Diane's final words, or Tulpa Diane's final words, yeah. um, when she says, oh, I gave him the coordinates, then she says, I'm a sheriff's station. Yeah. So is she talking about the coordinates being the sheriff's station? Yeah, or somebody in the sheriff's station. I suppose it could be, I'm in the sheriff's station. Yeah. But it's weird because obviously Albert and Cole know that they, they have to go to Twin Peaks at some point, so that's where the coordinates are. They might just get the message from Dale Cooper and know that it might instinctively be something that's related to... So so given that the Blue Rose Task Force is to do with tulpas and doppelgangers, it may be a message that says, my doppelganger is on his way to Twin Peaks. Yeah. You know, and, he, and and they will, you know, Cooper must know that Cole will understand that there are two Coopers at this point in the storyline. Yeah. Um, if you were to say, there are, um, you know, there's another one of me running around, he will know that Cole won't think it's weird. Yeah. I think, yeah. Uh, what's gone on with Sarah Palmer? Um, and, and is she possessed and who's possessing her? Jumping man. Next question. <laughs> um, is Richard Horn dead or teleported somewhere? Um... that's all all i can come up with i I don't know i think he is probably dead but i think i think he's both i think he's dead and he's probably gone to the red room i I think the last two hours are going to be like season two finale style maxed out you know it might even start with uh with the mc at the roadhouse just turning his little makeshift dial well past 11, <laughs> you know, and it, it just begins with that. And all of a sudden things get really crazy because Cooper's going to go back to Twin Peaks. Mr. C is going back to Twin Peaks. There is, from our understanding, but I think we're still, we still haven't reached that second day when 253 is meant to open something up near Jack Rabbit's palace. Yeah. So something is going to happen there. Um, and I think... Cooper going back is going to be obviously to take down Mr. C, which must involve him putting the ring on him and killing him to send him back. But it has to involve Laura and it has to involve resolving the Bob arc as well. I think they're not going to go this far and not resolve 
Laura and Bob. And indeed, Leland's find Laura message. Yeah. So maybe find Laura means she's in the Great Northern. Maybe he has to follow another hum and do that. But I, but I do find it's going to be interesting. I think, I think like I say, there's going to be a lot to get through. How do you think he's going to deal with all these um, meet and greets he's going to have to do with all these people in Twin Peaks? Yeah, because everyone is going to be like, oh, hey, Del Cooper. In fact, there might be that one they see Mr. C, yeah. uh, which is slightly worrying, uh, depending on who they meet first. But it's going to be an awful lot of people lining up to say, where you been? Come meet my son, Wally. Um, you know. And and also we've got to deal with the log lady's warning about the one under the moon on Blue Pine Mountain. Yeah. I like indeed, I mean, if that symbol is mother and there is there is some evil coming. We know that initially Mr C wanted mother. Either to see her or take control of her or to kill her. We don't really know. And certainly as Bob seemed to have been birthed in that stream of eggs that spewed out of the experiment slash mother back yeah. in part eight, we know that there must be some reason why he's also going to the same place. So all this stuff, it must be synced up to happen at 2.53 on the second day, on the 2nd of October. And I think everything's going to converge in a, in, you know, that, you know, it could even be that, that this two hour finale is going to be, you know, 70 to 80% is going to be just based around that one time point. Resolving everything in a certain uh, a certain way. Red and Shelley hasn't really gone anywhere. Shelley hasn't gone anywhere, I think. But Red will return, I think. Um, I still think there's something funky about Red, although he was kind of tangential to a lot of things. I mean, we've said it before, but I don't think Shelley... I don't think Bobby and Becky saw Red. And now we've gone back and watched part two a couple of times... Um, in the last week or so, I don't think other people in the roadhouse see her either. See red. See red. Sorry, yes, see him. Yeah. Yeah, but the whole kind of the whole drug trade and the sparkle and everything like that, and all the prostitution ring that that Jean Michel Renault was running. Yeah, is that is that just not going to get wrapped up? I don't know. I mean, thinking back, there were all those things where you know where Bobby was talking about he had cameras in the woods. Yeah. That was only picking up bears and things and. I mean, all these things might have minute payoffs, but I think we've got to be prepared for big arcs to be completed and smaller ones just to be left dangling a little bit. Yeah. What was the glass box for and who is the billionaire? I don't think we're <laughs> going to find any of that out. Yeah, I don't think we are. I think at this point, I think I think New York might actually be largely done. Um, I'd like to see a return to Sam and Tracy at a different time point to see what's going on. We might see the moment that the mother emerges like yeah. the actual time that that happens. Um, but there's still a lot of weird things, like when the security guard disappears, you know, what Tracy was doing, really, in that whole in that whole thing where she was bringing coffee, um, you know, why she was trying to keep an eye on what the keypad was saying. There's something funny about the whole thing. And we, and we still have to work out who was in that picture with Mr. C. Yeah. The bald yeah. guy, um, who was kind of like sitting on that weird stool. But the thing is, do you think they are going to go back to that? Like, in the, like we posted about it on Twitter a couple of days back, but are we going to go back to Buenos Aires? Are we going to find out about um, what Cooper was doing in... Was he in Rio? Yeah. Like, looking like a, you know, Brian Ferry album cover. You know? <laughs> it was just really weird, all that stuff. And it might just be tangential things that they don't really go back to. It's almost like you're meant to think, oh, this is what happened in the, in the last 25 years. You know, but they're not actually relevant to the story, so we're not going to address them in any depth. 
What do you, I mean, I mean, what do you think about the glass box? Like in in light of what we've seen in the last few hours. I don't know. I I still think that they they were either trying to create something or contain something, and whether they were trying to open a link, open some kind of vortex, or there was one that was naturally there and they were trying to contain it. Yeah. Um, because we saw, so we saw Coop fall through the non-existence and land on the box and phase into it. And that all happened a couple of minutes before the mother experiment emerged in the box and smashed its way out. And then in the woods at Jackrabbit's palace, uh, Nido appears to have fallen to earth. Yeah. Um, shortly before 2.53, when the vortex opens there. So is is it is that connected in some way? Can you fall through into a space in the time before a vortex opens? Yes. Because, yeah, because they open it... Well, it's, it goes back to what we were saying in, in our last podcast, I think, about whether the vortexes are always open everywhere. Because the one in Buckhorn appears to be open all the time. Yeah. Um, but the ones in the woods in Twin Peaks open at very specific times. So maybe maybe there's a window when it starts to open and you can travel near it, but you're not actually connected to the to the vortex itself. Yeah, because the one that Freddie finds in London is just down some alley, isn't it? Yeah. He climbs upon some boxes and there it is. Yeah. And then the one that Richard Horn gets zapped by yeah. on top of that rock. If that's a vortex. Yeah. Yeah. That just seems to be there all the time. They're not there at a specific time mm. for that to happen. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there will be an element of... I mean, I do wonder how much is going to be done with exposition. Mm. Because they are explaining a few things here and there. And I do think they might just talk about the New York event with, you know, a small aside from Tammy. Saying, oh, this is, you know, there's been some development or, you know, maybe they'll... Maybe some character will be revealed to be the billionaire and they just toss it aside that way. I, I, I think it's odd how that's not necessarily the most germane mystery to things anymore. Yeah. And it is seems it well, it seems to be boiling down to Cooper versus Mr. C. But somehow it has to involve Bob and Laura. Yeah. As well. Um Yeah. What do you think about the um about the potential for uh, the Al Cave ring to be involved here? Do you think that, like well it goes back to what we were saying about Audrey, but but what do you think about what's going on there? Yeah, so this all seems to be part of Mike slash Philip Gerard's grand plan because he's the one that we have seen repeatedly giving the ring to someone. Yeah, he gave it to Laura in Firewalk with Me. Well, he threw it in, yeah. didn't he, into the train car? Yeah. Um, he. Well, we don't we don't know who gave it to Dougie. Uh, but he gave it to Ray via some a prison guard. Yeah. Did he think? Did he think that Mister C would come and find Dougie though? And that's why he gave Dougie the ring, and he was going to tell Dougie. Yeah, maybe he's going to wake up Dougie or something, and and activate him to put the ring on Mister C and kill him. Maybe that was another one of his plans. I don't know. Again, it goes <laughs> against the idea though that Mister C created Dougie to have him have the ring yeah because how would he why would you give it to him when what unless he gave it to him so that he would be the one who went back to the black lodge 
Yeah. But then we don't know how he got it, given that the nurse had it. Yeah. Who took it off Annie. But then when Mike gets it back, he gives it to Ray, which means he must have, well, it must have got somehow from Philip Gerard, Mike to Ray. Yeah. Which strongly suggests that Philip Gerard Mike is the one pretending to be Philip Jeffries. Yep. And then when that came back, when Ray got killed, he's now given it to Cooper. So we've we've seen him give the ring to people twice, and we can infer a third occasion as yep. well. And also there's that bit where potentially, in the original series, Dougie Milford had the ring. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, but, but now that Coop has it, and presumably is aware of what he's supposed to do with it. Yeah. But whether it's going to end up in anybody else's hands or not, I don't know. Hmm. Is, is now the one person who can actually get the job done and kill Mr. C? Maybe, maybe. And how's this going to... I mean, do you think that's going to tie to the fact that Mr. C is looking for Judy and now he's going to the sheriff station? Well, it would if Nido is Judy. Yeah. Um, but it's it's weird to suddenly have Judy be a person given that for the best part of two decades, Judy was an unnamed figure referred to by someone who is in a couple of scenes. Yeah, and is now a kettle. <laughs> and is now a kettle. Um, but if if that is Judy, then presumably everyone is going to the sheriff's station. Yeah. And the coordinates will take them to the sheriff's station. And Freddie's going to have a lot of punching to do. That is true. And you know what else I can see now? This must be the bit where Andy pushes uh, Lucy out to go and see something. Yeah, yeah. He must be taking her to see maybe Cooper or yeah. something like that when Cooper um, arrives. Um, but speaking of Cooper arriving at the sheriff's station and other people doing that, do you think we're going to return to the insurance salesman? Oh, from, from part one? Yeah, who had that funny scene where, again, like the scene with Richard Horn in the van, you have one of those looped scenes where they just cut to the same thing again, where he says, I'm looking for Sheriff Tuman. Yeah. And they, and they use the same footage twice. Yeah. What's that going to be about? I, I don't know. It could just be one of those funny scenes that was there to inform the viewer that there were two Sheriff Trumans. Yeah. In, in a way that wouldn't then be a shock when the other Sheriff Truman turns up. But it was a weird way of doing it to very specifically repeat something. Um, obviously, there's funny things happening with the timelines. I know there's lots of theories out there about time quakes yeah. and parallel universes. I'm not sure if that's... I think elements of the time quake ideas are, are good. I think parallel universes, I'm not sure. Um, I think most things we're seeing are all part of the same timeline they're just different plot strands being shown slightly out of sync and maybe in slightly different orders occasionally but the events do seem to be linking up the only thing that hasn't really linked up is how the roadhouse scenes are yeah taking part um and all of a sudden what seemed like just a little collection of live performances largely that would have made a very nice i think dvd extra of like an hour of you know, songs from the roadhouse kind of thing they they do take on a tremendous amount of meaning if they are to do with audrey and her mental state as well but yeah it's it's there's, there's a lot to do in two hours and i'm not i'm not really sure how they're going to do it but i'm extremely excited to see what they can do i think you can do a lot in two hours i think lynch and frost know how to 
cover a lot of ground. It might mean that some aspects of it are not as satisfactory as others, but I think, you know, I think the one prediction we can make is that Laura will make an appearance. <laughs> So that's it for part 16 of Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee. What an episode to talk about. It's yeah. It's been absolutely fabulous. Um, we hope everybody else has really enjoyed the episode as well. Yeah, as usual, you can get in touch with us at the regular places on Twitter at TFCAA. There's a Facebook group, Time for Cakes and Ale. Uh, you can visit our website, timeforcakesandale.com. Um, and yeah, let us know what you think about all of these unanswered questions, which ones are going to be answered, which ones are going to be just left hanging at the end. Yeah, we've got, um, another episode hopefully out later in the week, which is going to be another slice of pie where we'll be talking very broadly about what's happened over the last 16 hours and potentially what it might mean for the finale. Um, that's going to be a slice of pie or another slice of pie with Seth Manukin. We've got our episode on the finale, which will come out um, in the few days after the finale, depending on how long it takes for us to process what happens <laughs> and how we can edit it down from a two-hour Twin Peaks episode into a podcast, which is under 10 hours, I suppose. <laughs> um, we'll also be returning, hopefully very soon after, to Listening Post Alpha with Lindsay and Aiden from Bickering Peaks. And yes... That's where we are now. We will see you again in a few days. Please carry on getting in touch with us on Twitter, etc. It's great to hear from you. Thanks for all the feedback. Thanks for all the lovely new iTunes reviews which have been popping up. If you have a moment, especially as we're nearing the end of the uh, episode recaps we'll be doing, um, do go to iTunes if you can. Leave us a five-star review and some comments. It really helps us build the podcast and it's really nice to uh, get some feedback on what we're doing as well but for now we've rambled on long enough and we're probably going to get some sleep uh, because it's very early in the morning thank you for listening that's it for now goodbye goodbye <laughs>